When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome to Buckeye Talk. I'm Nathan Baird with Cleveland.com here with Stephen Means and Doug Lamarice. It's July, but we're already talking the big upsets of college football. Right now, some might consider having college football to be a bit of an upset as we look ahead uh, through the mess that we're in right now. But we're looking at the Ohio State schedule. We've been breaking those down week by week. This week, the game up next is Ohio State at Illinois. It's the week before the big game. The week before Ohio State is scheduled to play Michigan at Ohio Stadium. Obviously, road games against Big Ten West teams, especially ones who maybe aren't expected to be that good or aren't having that great of a season kind of middle of the pack at best are ones that have tripped Ohio state up in its recent history. And I'm not necessarily predicting that against the Illini this year, but I thought it was worthwhile. We thought it was worthwhile to bring that up as the framework for a discussion about upsets. What are the factors that lead to an Ohio state upset? And by upset also, we're not talking about, Oh, they were favored to beat uh, to win at Michigan by a point and a half. And they lost on a last second field goal, not a betting upset. Like, Ohio State's ranked, the other team is unranked, they get smacked in the mouth, something bad happens, a team they're supposed to beat, and they lose. Uh, It doesn't happen a lot when you're an Ohio State fan, frankly, but it does happen, and I think it's interesting how that kind of is – those moments really do sort of define seasons or even sometimes define classes, define eras when you have those big losses that are a roadblock to what that team ultimately could have accomplished. Do you think that's a fair thing to say? Like, I was thinking about this, that, you know, last season, I think that the Clemson game is probably the one game that defines that whole season more than anything else. The rest of the season went pretty much according to plan. But obviously, you can look back at 2017, 2018. Those seasons are defined by the road games they went and lost to Iowa and Purdue. And, and when, when those are the, the games that ultimately decided where that team ended up as far as accomplishment, I think those define things as much as the major victories of a, of a season or of an era. I mean, a place like Ohio state, they just don't lose that much. Right. So uh, there's, there's almost any more, there's almost no such thing as like a completely forgivable loss because the expectations are so high, but just like, for instance, even like 
2009 USC. Like, oh, USC came in here. It was kind of a weird game. I think it was 18-15 USC won. But, you know, it's still USC. You know, they're good. It's not like the end of the world if you lose to USC. So that's not what we're talking about. And actually, even like – and, again, the parameters we established, the Michigan State 2015 loss is not on our list because Michigan State was number nine when they beat Ohio State in 2015. And it ruined Ohio State's season and ruined their mini dynasty. But these games that we're talking about, Ohio State's ranked the opponent is not. There have only been one, two, three, four, seven in my time on the beat. And one of them kind of doesn't fit. There's really six that stand out in my time on the beat in 15 years. So yeah, Nathan, I mean, it's like the idea of, they are defining because they're rare and we'll get into how rare they are. But I think the one thing that you have to appreciate in a thing like this, and the reason we're doing it, sometimes our podcasts that have a little bit of like a, this podcast is about unpleasant things in the headline. They don't do as well. Cause we can, we can chart all that stuff. We see what you guys listen to and what you don't listen to. And even like when we did their five recruiting hits and their five recruiting misses, like a month ago, the hits podcast did much better than the misses podcast. Cause I think sometimes people are like, Oh, why, why do I want to know about Ohio state's failures? But the idea of this is try to see if there's any kind of thing you can be on the lookout for in the future so that you can either a not freak yourself out and be like, okay, well, like some people are talking about this might be an upset week, but you know what? It doesn't really fit the model. I'm not that worried about it. Or just be smartly on alert when it's time. So there is a public service here. Even if they don't play Illinois, there's an overall service to Ohio State fans that we are providing. But you will find, and as longtime Ohio State fans are thinking about this, we went back to 98 with the research I did, back to the Michigan State loss in 98. So stuff older than that we're not dealing with. You do remember them because they are so rare. So I think you have to keep that in mind during the process, the, the entirety of this discussion. Don't get too down because we're talking like, you know, one every like two or three years, and that's really quite good. So you say you've got a whole history of, of how this is, has laid out here for Ohio State in, in recent years. Can you kind of like take us back through that? So, again, going back to 1998, by the parameters we set up, Ohio State when and this is all according to Ohio State's media guide there, that I went back and I looked through it. It's not a stat they provided, but I went back and used their – stats on what Ohio State was ranked and what the opponent was ranked each week. Ohio State, when Ohio State is ranked and the opponent is unranked, since 1998, by my calculations, the Buckeyes are 152 and 15. So I mentioned it's 15 times here. 152 and 15, that's a 91% win percentage when Ohio State's ranked and the opponent is not. When both teams are ranked, Ohio State is 69 and 25. That's 73% on the win percentage. So that's the difference between when you're playing a ranked team, you win 73% of the time. When you're playing an unranked team, and again, assuming Ohio State's ranked, you win 91% of the time. The couple times like in 2011 or 99 or some of the bad years where like Ohio State was unranked, I didn't worry about that because that's not what we're talking about. Um, so – that's, I don't know, like, I'm curious to, for just you guys, right off the, like, the idea of hearing those numbers, you win 91% of the games when you're ranked and the opponent is not, and is not, and 73% of the games when you're both ranked, like, 
Does that sound about right to you guys? Are you surprised by either of those stats? Over that long of a period of time, I guess that sounds about right. I almost would have thought even the ranked unranked number would have been a little bit higher. Yeah. Yeah. If anything, I would have thought that I'm not really surprised by that, especially given, you know, there's probably a major drop off in between, you know, who's at the top of the big 10 and who's, you know, I guess that's second tier and below. So no, I'm not really surprised that they're 90 per- You said 91% of the time they went against unranked opponents when they're ranked. Yes, 91. Yeah, I'm not surprised at that. And there's a couple, there's like a couple hinky things in there. Some of the 15 meet our parameters, but aren't exactly what you're thinking about. Like, for instance, I'm trying to think. Like in 2011, before everything fell apart, they lost a game when Ohio State was ranked and the opponent was not. And that just turned out like, oh, yeah, like Ohio State kind of sucked that year. You know, so it fits our thing. But there, there are some that stand out, but I mean, it's still one of those things. I guess if you asked a fan, when you play an unranked team, winning, winning nine out of 10, does that sound about right? Or would they think, oh, I think you should win 99 out of 100. You know, I, like 99 out of 100, I think is just, is just like too much to expect. You know, that it's just, yeah. there's a little bit of that. And I don't like it. You have to acknowledge it. There is a little bit, and that we'll find in this, there's a little bit of that any given Saturday kind of stuff in there that it's like, you just don't win all the time. You know, like very, nothing is 100% in sports. And so 91% is pretty good. Yeah. And the other thing to remember is like, it's, you know, it's, it's 91%, but what is it against? And I'm sure you didn't break it down quite this way, but what is it against Big Ten schools? And what is it against the non conference portion of your schedule where you win? Those are probably almost 100% of the time, right? The max schools, yeah, the, the because, other bye games. Because how often is Ohio State playing an unranked non-conference opponent? You know, that's you know, good enough to you know, actually compete with them. I mean, I will tell you, again, going back to 98, 15 of these upsets since 98, the only non-conference games are the bowl game against South Carolina at the end of 99, but things were falling apart. No, the end of 2000, Cooper's last game. Things are falling apart by then, but then uh, technically it still fits. So it's that, and it's the Virginia Tech loss in 2014 and the Miami loss in 2011, Miami, Florida. So those, so only three of the 15 are in non-conference, and none of them are against Mac schools. And technically, so. yeah, that South Carolina loss fits, but it's also it's a, it's a bowl game, yeah. so they had to do something to get there, and bowl games can be very screwy. Like we've seen and- screwy bowls or it's all the time. And that Ohio State team was screwed up by then. So, yeah, there. Sure. again, of these 15, I think you could argue that one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of the 15 still don't really fit what we think about as like a true, just like out of nowhere upset of a really good Ohio State team, that that would only really apply to seven of those 15. So that's how rare it is. I thought it was interesting that last year, the the way that these losses can linger, I know that they linger with the fan base. We've asked plenty of questions in terms of Buckeye talk um, to all of our listeners, our texters, 614-350-3315, shameless plug. We've we've asked all of you many times questions that kind of dance around this concept of the upsets, and we've had plenty of discussions about it. And it, it definitely lingers in their thoughts. It was affecting the way that they thought of a few games last season, at least before the season started. I think they got some more clarity as Ohio State's schedule played out and as, for instance, Nebraska's schedule played out. They, they had 
some some different perspective on whether that was really going to be an upset watch game. Certainly by about the end of the first quarter, they had a different opinion. But it's it's interesting to me the way that it kind of lingers with a program too. Like you could tell last year that it was something that as accomplished as that team was, as much as that team was winning, those losses from the previous year, two years ago, were kind of baked into the way that that team operated, that they they really can be catalytic moments in the same way that uh, a big recruiting land or a, a big breakthrough in development for a player or whatever. Like they seem to be the kind of things that can give a – it's not always a negative thing in the long run. It, it definitely, obviously it was negative. It cost Purdue or it cost Ohio state things when they lost to Purdue and Iowa, but it, it, it also something that they could gain something positive from if it was used the right way by the coaches, by the players themselves. It was the whole storyline for the Northwestern game, basically. Oh, here we are again, headed out West. Let's see what happens. And obviously they took care of business in 2019 when they did in the past two years. Yeah, and I that was they, even like a Friday night game, too. I mean, yeah. screwy things that go along with it right. might seem to be – there are people, as we get into our texters' answers, there's some people who kind of alluded to the the circumstances of the game being a factor. I think you could probably be, roughly speaking, one of four types of college football programs as you are a fan going into a Saturday. One is we suck, we expect to lose. There are programs like that. The second is we're mediocre. We could win. We could lose. You never know. Sometimes we beat good teams. Sometimes we lose to crappy teams. Sometimes we play a team that's just as good as us, and then it's a coin flip. Every week you have no idea what's going to happen, but by the end of the year you're probably six and six. The third kind is we're good, but, man, we always screw something up every year. So that you have constant reminders of dread that like you're 10 and two good, you're nine and three good, but you know, you're never really going to be 12 and out because you just can't compete with the big boys. Or even when you win against the big boys, you're going to lose to somebody else stupid. And it's just baked in that you can't expect perfection or, you know, expect a playoff year because you just can't do it for 12 weeks. And then the fourth kind of program is what Ohio State is right now, which is you basically win every game. But the result of that is the losses stand out so much, you can be as haunted by the losses or more haunted by the losses than those other three kind of programs. But the reason you might feel that, it's not rational, but the reason you feel it is because you remember Michigan State 98 so vividly because they don't happen that much. And you remember 07 Illinois so vividly because it's so rare. Now, Iowa and Purdue back-to-back years was unusual, but they're still very rare. Like in a, in a two-decade timetable, there's still not many of them. There happened to, it happened to occur in back-to-back seasons in 17 and 18, which I think left a little extra scar in Ohio State. But that's where Ohio State is. You really honestly – you barely have any of these compared to most programs, but the result is they linger with you more. Well, let's face it too. Like a lot of times when you're talking about these upsets, it's not like an across the board collapse where you just get crushed. Like upsets tend to be kind of like what Illinois did to Wisconsin last year at home, you know, kicking a last second field goal to sneak past a a team that on any other day is is more superior. It's not usually you get crushed the way the Iowa game and the Purdue game unfold. I think that was a factor in why those upsets, because the way those games looked that day, 
if you if you brought in an alien who knew about football but knew nothing about the teams about to play that game of football you would have those aliens might not have ever guessed that the team losing was actually the team considered to have far superior talent because of the way that those games played out right it it increases the scars a little deeper and it takes longer to yeah because Although, I, I mean, I don't know. I, there's only so much theoretical stuff we can talk about. It's like, yes, Iowa and Purdue kicked Ohio State's butt that day. But also, like, I don't know. Again, we're not talking about Michigan State because Michigan State went to the playoff that year and was a top-10 team when they beat Ohio State. That was a last-second field goal in 2015. That hurt just as much. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, on some level, it's almost like, well, you know, there was no <clears throat> way you were going to beat Purdue that day, the way it turned out. Even though Purdue wasn't that good, that day it wasn't going to happen. As opposed to, you know what, like, that Michigan State night, there's probably still you play that game nine out of ten times in the exact same circumstances. Ohio State probably wins, you know. So, um, but yes, it did contribute to it that the last two times it happened, they were blowouts out of nowhere. Yeah, I, I wasn't even necessarily insinuating that they hurt more. It's just I feel like that was why last season this fan base was maybe a little bit more on edge because it seemed like it was becoming a trend. Like you said, it's so rare that it happens back to back and then have it happen back to back the way that it did there. Um, I, I thought contributed to their psyche a little bit. Um, I should have mentioned up front, uh, Bob Asmussen from the Champagne News Gazette joins us on this podcast later to talk about Illinois. Believe it or not, he has been covering Big Ten football longer than Doug LaMaurice has. I think he started as the full-time beat writer in 1996. So um, rare that we get to have someone on with experience that exceeds Doug's. So uh, he gave us a lot of wisdom about uh, a lot of things, uh, stuff about the Illini, but also just kind of w- the state of where things are and, and where we're headed. So we'll, we'll get to him later in the podcast. Uh, I, I will say uh, we are, I think, coming up on the 10-year anniversary of the Cleveland.com preseason Big Ten poll, which we are going to do this year, no matter what, because I want to get down for posterity. I'm going to have all the poll voters, and Nathan, you you voted in this poll back when mm-hmm. you were covering Purdue. Um I want to get down for posterity what people thought about these teams yes. if everything was normal. Yeah. So that then when people, if we have to go back and say, hey, you know what? You know, uh, Illinois was picked to finish in the middle of the pack in the West after being picked last the previous six years. You know, like I want that down, that Ohio State was a, you know, unanimous favorite in the Big Ten East or whatever it is. We are going to get that down. But the reason I bring it up is the one year that I was sort of out of uh, commission a little bit um that i the year i was covering the olympics bob kept the poll alive bob is the guy that i turned to to help uh, facilitate the voting so that we did not have a hiccup there so i always love bob osmussen he's like a buckeye talk associate member based on that sadly for him but yes <laughs> well speaking of the illini or maybe not even speaking specifically the illini but that's the team that they're playing this year it's the week that's coming up it's kind of what prompted that we thought it would fit this discussion fit with this week in the series how much should this Ohio State team be on upset watch this year for this kind of upset they're not going to have the non-conference games so they're not you know that would obviously be a huge upset if they were to lose to a Bowling Green or Buffalo but the, the kind of upset where they just lose to well frankly what Illinois did to Wisconsin last year a team that's ranked uh, undefeated highly ranked coming in with a lot of steam big game coming up the next week they're supposed to be playing at Ohio State the next week and Illinois gets them at home how much should this Ohio State team do you think has that in them to be susceptible to that kind of loss this season Stephen, I don't um, obviously barring what happened and what we've talked about already with you know coronavirus and all that stuff I don't think they're 
susceptible to losing one of those types of games this year. I think this team's just too talented to do it. You know, it's they've been talented before. It's really hard. I, I don't want to, like, disappoint people. On the research I did and looking for a trend, it's, get, it's, it's a little hard to find a trend. I do think sometimes you lose. Like, sometimes you lose. And so I don't know that you can close your eyes and just say, like, it's never going to happen. It's one of those things. I don't – you can't live in fear of it, but you also can't think it's never going to happen, which is, like, no explanation. So I don't know that they should be on any extra watch, but, you know, this defense that's young, as we've said it many times before, and it's – you know, this analysis, we're going to do this analysis on this podcast outside of the coronavirus thing. As Steven mentioned, you know, outside, we talked about that already. That's there. We know that. But we're talking football here. We're talking about a football upset, not a virus upset. So in terms of a football upset, they're really good. But man, I'll tell you, I've seen some really good Ohio State teams. Not often. Not often. 2007, man, they were good. And Juice Williams came in and did him dirty. So it's you have to believe that it's possible without fearing it every week. Yeah, I mean, I would say because of the questions about this defense, I mean, I would if I had to put a scale of one to ten, I might I might say a five of just their general susceptibility to that based on what I know right today, which is I think a pretty high number for a team that you think might be a national championship contender. Uh, I think that's reasonable. I think that's reasonable. And it's, you do have to play the game a little bit of like, well, well, who, 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 right. right? I mean, I think you could do the general thing, but then you have to do, well, who, and I do think in general, it's like, if you kind of look for like a competent coach and a QB, maybe with some upside who isn't super consistent. And again, we'll start getting into the, some of this stuff. I think there are things that maybe you can look for, but I will tell you, and I don't know how much you and Bob talked about this, Nathan. Maybe you can give us a little tease. I mean, did anybody see Illinois' upset of Wisconsin coming last year? Other, I guess, other than the fact, I guess, that Wisconsin had Ohio State the next week, and if you believe in trap games and was, was Wisconsin looking ahead. But that's kind of why Illinois' upset of Wisconsin led us in part to discussing upsets linked with Illinois this week. Did, did Bob have any rational explanation for that? Did you get into that, or is it just one of those Saturdays? Uh, I did ask him, and no, he did not have a rational explanation for how that happened. He said it was the most, like the single most shocking event of his 31 years covering Illinois football. Um, I even tried to preface it by like, was that something you could kind of, you know, maybe you could see it coming, and it was just a team that there were more it had been less than the sum of its parts and it was a matter of what day was going to put it together and it just happened to put it together against Wisconsin and he was like no man no not at all like they were 30 some point underdog like they were not supposed to be anywhere near winning that game let alone win it so uh that that's the thing like those upsets happen I don't think anybody thought North Carolina was gonna really take a serious shot at Clemson last year they almost got it done we, we've seen other major upsets happen over the years, like to teams that, that are at the top of the rankings and then just kind of get stunned. Uh, I don't think it's something for people, like you say, I don't think you live in fear of it, but you, you have to respect it. You have to know that it, in this day and age, it sometimes takes just like one great game from a quarterback or um, one day where just the bounce of the ball really screws you as far as turnovers or things you can't control. 
and there you are. All right, let's get specific then. Let's get specific. Well, let's take a break, and we'll come back, and we'll get into our reader responses, and then that can lead into our responses before we talk to Bob later in the podcast. So let's take a quick break. We'll be back on Buckeye Talk. All right, we are back on Buckeye Talk. We are talking about the ingredients for an upset. What is it that sets the stage for Ohio State possibly suffering an upset loss, the kind of the Iowa, Purdue, Elk, those sorts of things? And we had a lot of reader responses. I thought they broke down into a couple of areas. I thought this one kind of encapsulated a lot of things, though, from the 803. The anatomy of a major Ohio State upset looks like this. One, cancer victim see Iowa's children hospital in Purdue okay not really just cancer but some sort of intrinsic motivation that elevates the atmosphere of the game Two, a glaring but to that to that point serviceable hole on the OSU roster such as linebackers versus Purdue three another worldly performance but one or or multiple players on the opposing team more for Purdue or King for Iowa and four finally an emotional letdown followed by a big win previously it's a lot of things but that's what it looks like I think that's probably right that I don't know that you can necessarily say only one thing matters. Only one thing will happen, and it leads to an upset of the kind of caliber that we're talking about. But I, I, the exercise here was like what one thing makes it, I think, the most possible? What thing like creates the biggest crack in the foundation that could cause the collapse that leads to the loss? So we're going to go through a few of those things. Um, one that jumped out to several people was turnovers. I think that's – they kind of broke down, like I said, into tangible and intangible things for me. And one of the tangible things was turnovers. Uh, from our, our guy Joseph in Atlanta, OSU's passing game needs to turn the ball over a bunch. JT, 2017 versus Iowa, four interceptions. JT, 2017, Virginia Tech, three interceptions. Prior, 20, 2009, Purdue, two interceptions. Beckman, 2007, Illinois, three interceptions. Uh, the only game that doesn't follow the model is 2018 Purdue, but the worst defense in OSU's entire history and also no running game overshadows anything Haskins could have done. And from 937, for Ohio State to lose, it would take being at least minus three in turnovers. A few bad breaks, a tipped pass for a TD or such, the offense being unable to lean on what it usually does best, whether that will be the run or the pass, depending on how the season goes. And I think it's interesting because we've talked before about turnovers being, yeah, I think in, in, in a, a – a quarterback throwing an interception is something they can often control. A defense taking an interception or taking a fumble is a little bit more in terms of – it's kind of a luck factor that goes into that a little bit. How do you guys see turnovers being like kind of a an important part of this? Uh, uh, I don't know if it's – because some turnovers are wacky. So I don't know if uh, – yeah, if you're throwing four interceptions in a game, you're probably not going to win that game. But I don't know if – I would necessarily have put that high on my list of things that are important in an upset just because all turnovers aren't created equal. And it just kind of depends on, you know, where, where, where are you at on the field when you turn the ball over? If you turn the ball over on, the fifth, on your opponent's 15-yard line, then they stop the drive. Or, the, or if you're throwing a pick six the first play of the game, that's a whole different type of turnover. So I don't know if I would place as much value on that over some other things. See, the, the hard thing here, and it's, and it's, again, this is a hard discussion, but I think, it's, I think it's interesting in its difficulty. Yes, of course, turnovers are a huge factor in upsets, but part of my interest in this is what are things that you can see before they happen, Right. And Joseph did great research there because I'd researched several aspects of this, but that's not one that I dug in on. 
but he brought up, of course, we all remember JT's four interceptions against Iowa, but JT Barrett was not turnover prone. Right. You know, the, yeah. Todd Beckman threw no touchdowns and three interceptions against Illinois in the loss in 2007. The rest of that year in all the other games combined, he threw 25 touchdown passes and 11 interceptions. So it's not like, I mean, you know, he had 14 for the year. That's, that's kind of a lot. But at that point, in the previous four games before Illinois in 2011, he'd thrown zero, one, one, and zero. So I don't know that you would have said ahead of time, oh, man, Todd Beckman, he throws a lot of picks. Illinois can exploit that. So I think it's something that happens in the middle of the game that obviously is a huge contributing factor. I just don't know that given Ohio State's history, it's something you can scout out. But I will tell you, I think it's fair. If it's like in the first quarter and your quarterback throws kind of like an inexplicable pick that leads to points for the other team – that is a very reasonable time to take a deep breath and say, I don't like how this feels right now. Well, I think that's a, that's a really interesting point that I think upsets sometimes it's like they start stewing and it, it, or, or the, the temperature just kind of gets turned up and they just start bubbling more and more and more as the game goes. Like you can feel them building early on something, the ground beneath that game shifts in some way. And all of a sudden you can kind of just feel something kind of happening. I thought that when we, at that Purdue Ohio state game in 2018 and I've seen it at other games too, where you're just like, even some games where I thought Ohio state was on top. Like, or they, you know, even the Clemson game, I know we disagreed on that, but like the way that Clemson game started, they weren't getting as many points as they should have out of those possessions. It didn't like necessarily mean they were going to lose a game, but it, it, it set the foundation for that game to be closer than it could have been later on in the game. So I think it's true that like sometimes in a moment like that early in a game can start the, it can light the fuse a little bit. And it's just a matter of how long that fuse is and whether somebody can put it out before the, the keg goes off. Just as a reminder, Ohio state had played eight games in 2017 before the Iowa loss. JT Barrett had thrown one interception. He threw one interception in eight games, and then he threw four against Iowa. So it's like, yes, of course, but there's just, you just would not have seen it coming. But then on the other hand, and I don't want to keep throwing caveats in here because I think one of the points we want to make is there are lots of other times when Ohio State could have lost or mm-hmm. felt like it was going to lose and then didn't lose. They still yeah. found a way to pull it out. But like, for instance, Last year against Penn State, right, that was the game where Justin Fields was, like, diving into the end zone and fumbled on the half-yard line that you thought it was a touchdown and it wasn't a touchdown, right? Wasn't that Penn State? It was. And then that game was close for a little while. It was like, uh uh-oh, this is going to bite them in the butt. What should have been seven points wasn't. That's I was like, oh, no, they won. You know, so it got a little tight in the third or fourth quarter. But it still it wasn't enough. They still won. They still overcame it. So there are going to be times, as much as I say – if there's an early turnover that leads to opposition points, that's a good time to take a deep breath. There are also numerous times when that happens and Ohio state is fine. You know, we talked before about how a, a loss can sometimes define a season, a team, an era, whatever. And I think the opposite is true. I think a, a win over Ohio state, maybe sometimes, especially a win at Ohio state helps define a certain player 
at a, at a certain school, an opponent. Um, we already mentioned Juice Williams from Illinois. I think obviously uh, Rondell Moore a couple of years ago for Purdue. There's going to be other examples, Doug, as you look back over, over that list of other players that that probably applies to. And I, I think that's sometimes the, uh, something that we don't factor in. Um, we talk about it like tangentially about, uh, you know, teams are always up to beat you or, uh, you know, you're always – they have kind of nothing to lose when you're playing Ohio State if you're an unranked team, especially if you're going on the road. The expectations are low. The opportunity is just there if, if you can summon it. And I think sometimes that's kind of a hidden X factor here too is that players get up to have their moment and get it and, and finally get – especially now that if you're from the West, you only get to play Ohio State once every four years, and that's good for you in terms of trying to make a bowl game if you're only a five- or six-win team to begin with. But it's uh, it doesn't give you a chance to necessarily showcase yourself against the best team in the country or one of the best teams in the country, except for that, that once in, in four years, it, it, it can, you know, it's that more was than once every four years. It's more than once every four years, isn't it? Um, if you're, playing... if it's a crossover game, like, okay, so maybe three years, yeah, but, but two, if you're two or three, yeah. Right. But if you're depending on where your career begins and ends, you might only see them once. No, that's true. Yeah. There mm-hmm. are good big 10 players who might get through a career playing Ohio state once for like sure. Like Rondell Moore. He played them as a freshman. He's not, he's probably going to the NFL after this season. And if mm-hmm. something screw, if, if they don't change the schedule and put Purdue on Ohio state schedule for this fall, then that may be the only time he plays them. But Purdue is screwy because they protect protected the Purdue, Indiana crossover. They play that every right. year. So that's Ohio right. state plays Purdue less than they play everybody in the West, which is a tangential point, but. But anyway. I just miss Rondale more because I think it's cool. <laughs> but I, I wonder sometimes if that's a, a factor here in the upsets too. It's that, that we, we figure we forget sometimes how much other opponents are getting up to take these guys on. And multiple textures brought up the idea of just like having an opposing like star um, step up and have his moment from the 419, a quarterback who plays a game of his career, Juice Williams, 168.0 QBR, Nate Stanley, 93.3 QBR. David Blau, 80.9 QBR, and that's actually not that great of a number, but David Blau in general um, had some interesting passing numbers at times when he was at Purdue. Um, that was me talking, not not them. Um, interceptions that those three threw combined, zero. So many factors, and you could pinpoint games like 2015, 2015 Sparty and 2014 Virginia Tech where the quarterback play was not sensational either. However, in those games, their quarterback ratings were still far superior to ours. And from the 937, the main ingredient is one from one player from Illinois. And there were a couple of textures who thought, I think, that I was saying, well, it'll take for Illinois to win when I was looking for something more general. But they gave some good answers regardless. Um, one player from Illinois to have a crazy breakout game. A lot of people talk about turnovers, which is always a great point. But against Maryland, we literally just could not stop them. Quarterback or halfback being the most likely suspect. This will usually involve the player making plays where you can do nothing but put your hands up and think, how in the hell? And I think there's something to be said for that. That like The reason that it's an upset is because I think the nature of it is players who – the players on the opposing team – did things that day that they don't normally do. We, we sometimes look at it only through the lens of Ohio State shortcomings that day and not enough through the lens of, man, that guy just had the best day of his life. So I will say, and I, I have done as much myth-making on this as anybody, and I'm not – I'm arguing the point a little bit because, um, yes, it's mostly right, and we've talked about that a lot. Josh Jackson, the cornerback for Iowa um, in 17 – Ryan Kerrigan, the defensive end, Purdue in 09, right? It's not only the quarterback. There are guys that out. But just as a FYI, Juice Williams, 2007 against Ohio State, 12 of 22 for 140 yards. 
completed 55% of his passes, but he had four touchdowns. Two of them were like 30 yards plus. Two of them were short. I still have the picture in my head of Malcolm Jenkins getting sucked up and Juice Williams hitting the ball over the top late in that game. But it's not like Juice Williams, he completed 12 passes. He completed 12 passes the whole yeah, it's game. Not, it's not like he threw for 450 yards and right. six touchdowns. Well, but he was, a, he was also a dual-threat quarterback, too. What did he run for that day? Uh, I can look that up. But, I mean, I, like, I, so, but like in my head, it's like juice, juice, juice. Juice ran 17 times for 70 yards that day, which is pretty good. Uh, and they had Rashard Mendenhall that day, who was, only, who was 26 for 88, but that guy's an NFL pick. That guy's an NFL yeah. first-round pick later in his career. Um, but – you know, there are just some of those. So, like, I agree, but also, like, David Blau, at least, David Blau was 25 of 43 for 378, three touchdowns, no picks, right? There's a little more of that. And, and I have all the quarterback stuff down here, but there are let more of the 15 losses by our parameters, half of them, the quarterback, opposing quarterback, didn't throw for over 200 yards. So, there are other things that go into it, but that's, like that's that's not the only thing. As much as I, it is a thing. Nate Stanley threw five touchdown passes for Iowa, but the other thing about it is, it's not great quarterbacks. It's like sort of random dudes yeah. having great days. Which again, how can you pinpoint that ahead of time? Right, uh, Juice Williams seventy yards rushing that day. Illinois ran for two hundred and sixty yards total. So it was definitely a day where they won that game on the ground more than in the air. There's a kid named uh, Daniel Dufresne, uh, really? no relation to Andy, I assume, 106 yards on only eight carries that day. So sometimes that's the other thing too, right? It's not that the star stepped up. It's that somebody else that you weren't expecting just kind of went off. Like as much as we talk about Ronda Moore, I think DJ Knox and some other people had big games for Purdue that day that I remember that were not like household names by any means. DJ Knox, 16 carries, 128 yards and three yeah. touchdowns. So, yeah. And I think Dufresne, and again, my memory is bad, but I think I have, I think Dufresne had like a long run down the sideline that sort of helped set the tone for that game, if I remember, which is how he wound up with eight for 106. The listeners remember better than I do. But yeah, but again, how do you predict it? You can't. Right. Um, kind of along the same line. So we had some answers that I thought overlapped a little bit. And so if you're mentioning, like, like these texters mentioned, they were kind of looking at offensive stars, quarterbacks, running backs, having big games. And that kind of leads into a greater point that some other people were playing, paying attention to, which was that it's the deficiency in the defense that they feel sets the foundation for a loss more or lack of foundation for a loss more than maybe on the other side of the ball. Uh, Flay from the 419 with a 614, which is probably the longest uh, tagline that we have for many of our texters right now. In my opinion, the number one ingredient for an un unseen upset is the defense. If a starter or two go out sick, the lack of depth at cornerback and not the strongest interior D-line could be a recipe for an upset. Again, talking about this year's Ohio State team. Um, if one of these unforeseen teams can get their run game rolling, hit a few big throws deep, OSU may find themselves dusted. And from the 864, poor linebacker play. Both of those losses largely hinged on slot guys, tight ends for Iowa and Ronda Moore for Purdue, abusing linebackers in coverage and scoring touchdown after touchdown. Also red zone inefficiency. So, yeah, giving some a look at the, the offensive side of the ball. But it is interesting that linebacker play did factor heavily into both of those losses. It was an issue one year, and they didn't get it fixed enough to prevent it from being an issue in that next year's game again. Although Ronda Moore, I think, they made the adjustment. They wasn't locked up against 
linebackers very much in that game too. He was a problem for the cornerbacks too. Um, but it, I think it, that can be part of this too. Like if you have one a position that is an, an issue for a little while, that, that's going to make you more susceptible. And if we're worried about linebackers, like that I don't think is an issue this year. That I, whatever, no, no. I, I don't know how great they'll be, but they're super experienced and they're now used to this. Even though Kerry Combs is coming in, they know what's up. And so I don't think if there would be an, an upset of Ohio State in, in 2020, I don't think linebackers would be one of the reasons this year if that's something you're worried about. And, and that also leads into another thing that the Texas brought up, which is, and I wrote this down as kind of the Achilles heel. Like there's something wrong with your program that your opponent is just able to exploit. Like they get you. Like they, they saw it on film. They schemed up to take advantage of it and they just hit it and you didn't have an answer for it. Um, th- this answer put it, it, put it very well. Um, from the 650, uh, the undervalued but not untalented area, the unranked team is able to prey upon and expose a single OSU unit, a la tight ends on linebackers at 2018 Iowa, Rondo Moore on the secondary 2019. It's just taking it's just taking out the right Jenga piece to make the OSU tower unstable enough to crash down. I thought that was a great piece of writing from our, our texter in the 650. Uh, also from the 440, an unforeseen weakness that the opponent also happens to have a particular strength in Outside of that, it's basically a lightning strike. Everything that can go wrong does. High-powered offensive stall and worse yet, give up points via pick sixes and defense can't get a stop to save their life. And also from our buddy Smokey Mango, to me it's opposing NFL talent matched up with underprepared OSU players. Could be recruiting misses, the O-line of a few years ago, a lack of development, the Bill Davis linebackers against Iowa, or scheme issue, 2018 defense versus Ronda Moore. The other team has to facilitate their game plan on exploiting these matchups, and if they do, they have a shot. And that kind of leads into, I think, one of the intangibles, though, is how much of that is is players just not getting it done and how much of that is – and maybe you don't consider this an intangible, but coaching. Like, because coaching, I think, can be a tangible thing. And those were maybe the days where it was most tangible, right? You could see out there that there were either development issues or recruiting issues or schematic issues that were at the heart of how those teams were able to beat Ohio State. And that's – I would put that more on being a coaching issue just because if that's the case, that, that, that day that you got upset was probably not the first time you saw it. That team was just able to take advantage of it and led to a win. But you probably had been seeing it for a couple of weeks and knowing that, okay, if this goes haywire, we can point to this exact reason for why. Yeah. It, again, I don't want to – I don't want to, like, uh, discredit the entire idea of this podcast – but it is one of those things that's like the weakness that the team exploited. It's like, okay, well, like, you know, the other 10 or 11 weeks of the season, the opponent didn't exploit it enough because Ohio State was good. The whole point of this is they're losing when they're good. But I, I, I do think it's a smart point. And I do think a lot of times, I remember doing this back in the day, it felt like a thing you did more for a newspaper than you do for a digital thing. But I, maybe, I, maybe we can get into it more this year if we want to. I don't know. I'm trying to think what we do for our game preview stuff. But there used to be a time when everybody did like matchups, right? You did matchups there. You're, you know, one team's passing game against the other team's passing defense. But I do think when you do stuff like that, again, you could have pre, you could have seen ahead of time, Iowa's tight ends, Ohio state's linebackers. That was there. You could see Rondale Moore in the slot, Ohio state's defense. That was there, right? There are some things 
you know, Bud Foster, Virginia Tech's defensive guru against a quarterback and JT Barrett making his second career start. You can see this stuff ahead of time sometimes, but also then it's hard because, again, sometimes you think you see it and it's like, and I've been down this road, and all of a sudden you're like warning Ohio State fans, hey, you should be on upset alert. Hey, watch out for this. And then Ohio State wins like 48-3. to three. And it's like, what were you talking about? And it's like, well, I thought I saw something. I thought I saw a matchup. But I do think that's a smart way of explaining it by some of those texters that, you know, even a team like Ohio State, you're not an A-plus across the board. So if you're talking about, hey, somebody has a really good interior offensive line and a physical running back, and you're not sure about Ohio State's defensive tackles, okay, you might be on to something there. So I do think that's a good way to go about it. Yeah, and when I covered Purdue, we had a weekly thing, who has the edge, and you went position by position and did that. Even so, Not even so much position by position, but it'd be like um, uh, Ohio State's running game versus Purdue's run defense, um, those kinds of things. Um, the problem, I think, with covering Ohio State is there's many, many, many weeks where that would seem um, not that informational. I think what, but what we do, I think, is you try to identify the weeks where it would be and write about those categories where it is now a, a real threat to Ohio State. Because I think you can go through a season and it, there might only be a handful of them at this stage of Ohio State's program. Yeah, and, and I do think, I mean, if you think back, as much as Purdue was a surprise, there were people on the beat that week who were like, oh, there are some things at play here. And that Purdue team turned out they weren't good. They weren't um, good. And that's another aspect I want to talk about. But the one thing I was wondering about with some of these teams are, did it turn out that the team that upset Ohio State actually was good and you just didn't know it at the time? That Purdue team lost like four of its last six. It's not like they were good every week. I mean, well, they had team, some, they, they, that, Purdue team, that Purdue team started 0-3. Yeah. I know. And then they finished 2-4 and four after beating Ohio State. Right. They're not good. They beat Ohio State. I stood there on the field by myself. That was like the one week I covered a game by myself, I think. I stood on that field and said, it feels like Purdue is now the favorite to win the West. And they lost four of their last six. They does were that, not include, good. Does that include the Auburn game, the bowl game? Yeah. They lost four of their last six. I'm just, they finished I'm just, six and seven. Yeah, yes, including I don't the care Auburn. if it includes the Auburn bowl yes. game or not. They finished six and seven. They weren't good. They weren't good. There, there's no way. I thought. Well, that's what made it an upset, obviously. They weren't. No, but sometimes, again, by our parameters, sometimes, and like, for instance, and I had sort of forgotten this, Penn State 2016, Penn State's unranked. They're four and two unranked going into the Ohio State game. And it turns out the Ohio State game is, is in the early on in what's a nine game winning streak that leads them to the Rose Bowl. And they finished number five in the playoff rankings. So that's like that, that Penn State upset fits our parameters. Ranked Ohio State team, unranked opponent. It just turned out Penn State was just starting to be good. But that is actually Penn State's the exception to the rule. A lot of these teams, and I can run through these at some point. It's amazing that I, th I thought that might be a thing. It was just a team that was – we didn't know how good they actually were because they were right at the beginning of figuring it out, and that is not the case, the case of most of these things. A lot of these teams, when they do upset Ohio State, 
they go on and lose two of their next three to crappy teams. So it's, well, it is, it's, it's lightning in a, more than often, more often than not, it's lightning in a bottle for one Saturday. Yeah. If you have some facts on that, I think that would be a good time to get to them because I think in the case of both Iowa and Purdue, I would, I would say that both of those teams were not good to the level of, of Ohio state by any means. They were like bowl teams, but they weren't like really good teams, but they were also teams that I, you could, I think also argue we're underachieving a little bit at that point of the season or had underachieved earlier heading into that game. Neither of them finished in the top 25. So right, it's like, right. I don't know what, what's good, a winning record. I don't know. Like that's, that's mediocre to me. So I will tell you of the 15 losses that we're talking about here since 98, only five of those teams finished in the top 25 that season. So I'll run through it very quickly. 2018 Purdue, they finished six and seven. 2017 Iowa finishes eight and five. 2016 Penn State finishes 11 and three, seventh in the country. They were good. 2014 Virginia Tech, they were not good. And that's part of why we thought it was going to hang on Ohio State's neck all year because Virginia Tech started losing. They finished seven and six. 2011 Miami, Florida fits the parameters, but that Ohio State team ended up being very mediocre. But Miami beats them when Ohio State's ranked. Miami finishes six and six. 2009 Purdue fits this as well as any upset in the past 20 years, that Purdue team finishes five and seven. They were one and five going into that game against Ohio state, a one and five team beat Ohio state, beat Terrell Pryor in Ohio state, one and five. They finished five and seven, 2007, Illinois. That's peak Illinois. They finished nine and four. They go to the Rose bowl. They were seven and three coming in, but they do go to the Rose bowl. They finished number 20 in the country. That was a pretty good team. 2004 Northwestern finishes six and six. 2001 Wisconsin finishes five and seven. 2000 Minnesota finishes six and six. 2000 South Carolina in the bowl, they finish eight and four, but that's the end of the year. 1999 Wisconsin, they had lost two games early to Cincinnati and Michigan. They then run the table the rest of the season, including beating Ohio State. They finished 10 and two, number four in the country. They're the other team in this. That turned out to be a really good team. You just didn't know it at the time. That's 99 Wisconsin. 99 Illinois, they finished 8-4, and four, number 25. And 1998, Michigan State, the, the, the life-altering Michigan State team that ruins John Cooper, one of maybe John Cooper's best team in 98 when Ohio State probably should have won the national title. That Nick Saban's the coach. He's a genius. That Michigan State team finishes 6-6. Six and six. They were 4-4 four and four coming in. They beat Ohio State. The next week, they lost to Purdue, and they finished the year losing 51-28 to Penn State. So that was that Michigan State team that sort of was like one of the upsets fans will never forget. And I think that does change a little bit how you look at some of those upsets, though, right? Like when a team then turns out to, if it's an early season upset, and that team ends up in the top 25 or ends up pretty good, I think it changes how, you, how much you consider that a big upset, too. And it's only, but only two of the 15 would fit that. But I agree. Right. I thought there might be more. And in my head, when I was thinking upsets, I wasn't really thinking about that Penn State game because I had forgotten that Penn State wasn't ranked back then. That they, I knew they hadn't quite shown it. They had the early loss to Pitt. Like they were four and two. They were, because I, I remember I, I almost wrote that week that like James Franklin might be should get fired. I was on the edge of writing it. I didn't write it. And then like he won nine straight. But, Again, that's, that would have been amazing if you had. Written. Yeah. Oh, that would totally fit the Doug Maurice no, demo. That would be the that's the nine and three right there. I also I also 
wanted to pick Penn State to upset Ohio State that week, and I was talked out of it. And I've talked about that before because nobody saw it coming. I was talking to my friends who cover Penn State, and I was like, I think Penn State might win this game. And they were like, you are crazy. And it's like the people who know that team the best, I was like, okay, they don't see it. But Penn State got some guys back healthy on defense that week, and a bunch of weird stuff happened. Anyway, that is not the excuse most of the time. So two out of 15 times, it turned out the team that sprung the quote upset was just a really good team that hadn't shown it yet. So I think that kind of leads into another point, which is on the intangible side of things, you know, those things as far as like players and, and I guess you could say conditions, turnovers, those to me are more tangible. Then you have this other side of things where it's like, maybe there's just something foggy going on. Maybe there's something more that has to do with the mental and emotional side of the game. Uh, than the physical side of the game and that's what sets the stage for these upsets and there, uh, one category I just put it under kind of readiness uh, from the 3-3-0 I think the only thing that makes Ohio State suffer losses like that are just lack of focus slash preparation slash adjustments on the fly I know Doug likes to talk about Rondell being the elite NFL elite guy against linebackers or the tight end from Iowa being NFL guys Ohio State has mismatches in their advantage all over the field for those games so getting punched in the mouth and not being ready for the fight is what got them before and that is what would get them again uh, from Don R in the 614, for an Ohio State team to lose to an unranked opponent that they're favored to beat boils down to emotional readiness or the lack thereof. If a team is not emotionally ready to match the intensity of their opponent, then they are vulnerable to getting beat. Ohio State has a large bullseye on its back. It looks like a block O. So we always get the opponent's best shot, which means they are emotionally ready to give it their best shot. Oftentimes we have competitive games well into the first half until the other team cannot play at the same intensity level. We then pull away and games are all but over. But there are times when heavily favored teams do not put an underdog away and it becomes a dogfight. That's when upsets happen. It's extremely difficult for teams to get emotionally charged every week, especially when the opponent doesn't really have your respect. Um, and I'm wondering if there's something to that side of things that maybe, you know, we always talk about teams like Ohio State. Um, I'm sure this is something that one of them said to us last year during interviews. It was like, well, we're the only, the only team that can beat Ohio State is ourselves. Like we have that much talent. If we go out and do what we're supposed to do, we can win the, any game. And is that an ingredient when you're talking about these teams, the teams that aren't actually good, the teams that are, are really just you know, like the Purdue game and the Iowa game and, and teams that never really break through and become an upper echelon team, that that's as much a factor as anything that Ohio state just didn't show up ready to play or ready to uh, match the intensity of the other team. So it sounds like, what this person is saying is when you're a more talented team, coaches will always say you can't just always try to – you can't just flip the light switch on and off. And some sometimes when you go to flip it on halfway through a game, it doesn't turn on for you. It can turn into an upside. I, I don't – I mean, i sure that's a thing. I think sometimes a team just has your number, though. I don't want to just toss that up to a saying like that where it's just you, know, you turn the, the light switch on and off enough times and one time you go to do it and it doesn't turn on for you. I don't know if that's – I don't I – don't, think that's a thing that much I just think sometimes the team has your number and we've talked about the concept too of the of the trap game as being part of that emotional letdown and whether we believe trap games are real and, and what constitutes a trap game that sort of thing um, a, a couple of answers along this line from the 502 uh, the emotional letdown for an away night game Iowa was after Penn State Purdue was in the middle of a lull of games that Ohio State probably thought they could sleepwalk through and win and from the 4-4-0, physically and emotionally draining game the week prior. When we lost to Penn State a few years ago, they had way less talent, but we played a tough game against Whiskey the week before, and we made so many mental errors against Penn State that it caught up to us. I think that might 
be the one thing on the intangible side that probably is real. If you're playing back-to-back weeks and that other week was in just a grinder and you're just kind of left emotionally spent by it, even if you win, I understand why, especially when you're going on the road, that's a tough thing for any human being to like get themselves back up to that same emotional mental level for a week later. I mean, it's what these guys sign up for. It's what they're out to do. It's what the coaches are paid to get them to do. But let's just be real human beings. That's a tough thing to ask them to do sometimes back to back. That's why the, the, the college football season has so much value because each game is kind of a referendum on a season sometimes. And, and each loss carries that much weight. And this is why, because it's so hard to to get through a full season undefeated. I, I subscribe to the meat grinder effect, which is why I think, you know, when the SEC was better than everybody else, it's like, yeah, it does matter because even the, you know, every week is just harder and every week builds on itself. This is one of the things I researched and it's the certain parameters that I set, but of the 15 losses that I referenced here since 1998, 15 upset losses, how many of them happened after Ohio State had beaten a ranked team the week before? Ten. That's very specific, but the answer is four of the 15. Penn, Iowa in 2017, absolutely one of them. We all know mm-hmm. that, the comeback against Penn State. Penn State in 2016, the person just referenced it. They'd beaten a ranked Penn, Wisconsin team the week before. Obviously one of them. The two others were when they lost to Wisconsin in 2001 and when they lost to Minnesota in 2000. They had beaten ranked teams the week before. But like, and and again, and I'm I'm agreeing with this. The big thing in 2014, part of it was that they played Navy the week before. Navy is nuts. Navy runs the triple option. Navy chop blocks your defensive linemen. Like Navy is hard to prepare for. They're very specific. All the preparation you put in for Navy does nothing for you against your next opponent. And that was one of the things that was cited when they then lost to Virginia Tech the next week in 2014. But then there are other times where that's not it at all. You know, that it's like it's just, you know, 2007 Illinois, that wasn't the case. They just were running, they were just rolling along and they just lost. So I. I agree with it, but I think it's not at the top of my list because I can show you the million of other times that they beat a team in a tough game and then came back and won the next week. So I I agree with where people are coming from on that, but it's still not like number one on my list of things that would contribute to it. There is a secondary point of something you said before, though, that I I do want to touch on very quickly, which is the idea of can you – because here's the thing. If you want to, you can say, well, it's because they played a tough game the week before, and that's why they lost and then were upset because they played a hard game the week before. But then sometimes people say, well, they're in the middle of a stretch of a month of of nothing games. They haven't been tested, and that's why they lost, right? And so it's like, okay, well, which one is it? Those are opposite things. In 2009, it it might be the only time I ever thought this. I guess maybe I thought it in 2015 because they were so out of whack in 15. It was like, are they really going to get through this season? They're so out of whack. But in 2009, I thought I felt it coming. I thought it felt like this team is not locked in mentally. And there is something happening here. They're really talented, but their starting quarterback's only a sophomore. They still are actually kind of young and learning, and they're a little ahead of themselves on how good they think they are. 
I thought I saw it coming, and I picked Ohio State to lose to Wisconsin. And Wisconsin, Ohio State pick-sixed Scott Tolzien twice in that game, and they whacked him 31-13, where I and the plain dealer had picked Ohio State to lose that week. Because I thought I felt it was all feel. And I was like, that was incredibly wrong. And they lost to Purdue the next week. They lost to one in five Purdue. So of all the times that I would say, there's nothing there at all. It's inexplicable other than it, the Buckeyes weren't right. That's the one time in 15 years when I felt that. And if I ever do feel that again, I'll tell you, because I think it's rare and you can be wrong on it. But sometimes when you're around the team, you can get a vibe that they're talented, but they are not locked in. So one last point I want to make, or the textures I should say, made before we move on, kind of along the lines of the more intangible things, just that idea of inspiration, because it came into, multiple people mentioned it. I think I already um, read one texture that had mentioned it. And they were trying not to be macabre about it. In fact, that's the word that this next texture used. They're not trying to be glib about it, but that in both the Iowa case and the Purdue case, and maybe that's just because there's some recency bias here because it happened back-to-back years. But they felt like just the atmosphere of the game, you know, the Iowa Children's Hospital situation, the Tyler Trent thing, I don't, I don't think they're saying that, that it takes sick people to make it happen, but that there's some other inspiration that the other team is feeling that adds to it. I think – I can't speak to the Iowa game. I wasn't involved in that situation. I do think it was a factor. It wasn't that Tyler Trent lifted that team up, but I think there was an atmosphere building all day with that Purdue-Ohio State game that played into it. I think at the, at the end of the day, it wasn't the main factor. The factor where the shortcomings in Ohio State's defense, the fact that they had red zone trouble that day, the way that Purdue was able to move the ball, those things were all more important. But I, I'm, I, I think the inspiration can have it, – it can be an X factor to some extent, not the primary one, but one that, that does make some sense. From the 740, a more fan answer and a bit macabre, I would say a feel-good public interest story about kids. I'm sure this is confirmation bias, but as someone watching because – both of those games on TV, two of the biggest stories were the Children's Hospital Wave in Iowa and Tyler Trent for Purdue. I'm not denying the football reasons for losing the game, but it felt like we were supposed to lose those games. I, I, I think there's something to be said for that, but I also think that it's one of those things that fans sometimes attach after the fact. If Ohio State had won both of those games, right? They, those, yeah. the, 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 the inspirational aspects would have just gotten lost in the shuffle. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I think the Tyler Trent thing was a culmination of things unlike anything I've covered. Yep. And I don't even think the, per, I don't think the Ohio state side of things, I didn't understand that. I don't think Ohio state's players understood it um, in the moment at all. Yeah. Because and until it, the Purdue people, the, the Purdue players, we knew it was like, okay, we knew ESPN's doing a big story on this and stuff. But then when you heard, the Purdue players talk about it afterward. And I remember, you know, this more firsthand Nathan, but I did a story on David Blau when he was in camp with the Browns Mm -hmm. last year as an undrafted free agent at quarterback. And we talked about this and he, again, I'm sure it was the 4 millionth time he'd told the story, but his friendship with Tyler Trent and him talking about the, the feeling around that game was just so rare that I, I do think that that was on the Purdue side of things that certainly mattered. Yeah, and I think in in that case, also, if that had not been a night game, I think some of the effect of that would have been lessened because 
that was a feature that played on game day that day and been produced never on game day, as you guys can all probably uh, assume. And then that sort of just led to a feeling that was building all day. And like, would he be able to come to the game? And then he was at the game and like stuff's going on on social media. And it was just, just this thing that built all day. So I think in that case, again, I don't think the spirit of, of Tyler Trent that day, like won that game for Purdue. But I think it was a contributing factor to the atmosphere that, that set up an upset. Um, and I think and, it, it contributed to Purdue playing well. Yeah. Yeah, if, more than anything else. And if Dwayne Haskins lets focus, go yeah. of a let's go of a pass to Terry McLaurin in the back of the end zone a nanosecond earlier in the first quarter, and they get seven instead of three early on, like then Ohio State still might win. But I think because there's two different things. You can't necessarily control whether you win or not. You can control how well you play. I think Purdue played really, really well because something greater was at play there. Everything that was going on around them helped them get up for the game, along with the fact that it's Ohio State. They played with a sense of purpose. It's one of the other, kind of as I alluded to before, like sometimes teams just getting up for their opportunity to knock off a team like Ohio State. I think that contributed to the sense of purpose that Ohio that Purdue played with that day. Which um, I, and I just, I just want to throw this in here, and I don't mean to keep doing it, but like, for instance, the best coaches, when they go against Ohio State, seize on that. Sure. They make that an advantage for them. And that Luke Fickle last year did not do that. Luke Fickle chose the 180 degrees for Cincinnati. We're going to treat it like any other game. You're dead. You're dead. You're dead. You're dead before you start. Because it's not any other game. Because they're that much better than you. So your only hope is to seize on they are better than us. Of course they're better than us. But that doesn't mean we can't win. They have everything to lose. We have nothing to lose. If you don't use that to your advantage, then you're just waiting for Sean Wade and Zach Harrison and Justin Fields and Wyatt Davis to make your life miserable. Your only play is to acknowledge. It's the day. If you don't acknowledge that you're David, if David looked up at that dude, and was like, hey, man, this is just – I got my slingshot. This is just another guy that I'm using my slingshot against. You're crazy. You've got to feed on it. And I think Purdue is the extreme example of that. But that is something – and Ohio State talks about it every time. It's like, of course, you're going to get their best shot. But the way that you get an underdog's best shot is by the underdog acknowledging that it's an underdog, which is why Ohio State – tries to be an underdog even when it's not. Luke Fickle and Cincinnati were an underdog, and Luke Fickle was like, well, you know, this is just another American conference game. It's like we're playing Tulsa. It's like, what are you doing? And then they lost 42 to nothing. It was just crazy. He was probably the most well-equipped to do it. He was absolutely. <laughs> it was his inherent intrinsic advantage, here. and he punted it away by pretending that playing Ohio State is the same thing as playing Temple. It's bonkers. So I think it's time for us. Like, what, what do we think? What is our number one answer for what sets the stage for an Ohio State upset loss? I would just like to point out before we answer that it is not Market Down Monday. Okay, can I just say that? Yeah, we're not so, really like yeah. market. This is, this is I more. Yeah, I, just, I, don't, I don't know. How, how do you mark this down? It's more just kind of. 
So I just before I give my wishy-washy answer, I just oh. want to lay down that, that <laughs> That's it is not enough. this is not the day that we're not allowed to give wishy-washy <laughs> answers. This is wishy-washy Wednesday. This is not market down Monday. So I'll go last, but I just want to preface that again because I know I don't want to lead you guys into thinking, well, I've got to say this. And then Doug says, Well, you know what? Football's a funny game. Because my answer is going to dance around football as a funny game. But you guys go ahead. You're going to give us coach speak? You're going to give us coach speak? I hate it. I, I, I want to wrap coach speak up and bury it in the ground. But, yes, I am going to give you coach speak. Go ahead, Steven. Okay. I think it's, it's, it's just an inherent flaw that your team has that year. And for some reason, that inherent flaw – just so happens to be that other team's biggest strength. You know, we talked about the Rondell Moore thing. We talked about, you know, the Iowa, Iowa's tight ends. In both of those situations, something that may have been Ohio State's biggest flaw, whether it was defensive scheme or it was, you know, linebacker play, even JT, the quarterback play probably wasn't the highest ceiling it could be that played into what just so happens to be that team who obviously is the lesser talented team, but whatever their biggest strength is, also just so happens to be your biggest flaw. And you see it in weeks before. It's a conversation throughout the year of, hey, is this one thing going to hold Ohio State back? And it's pinpointed, and then it all comes into fruition on this one Saturday afternoon or night or whenever the game is. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think we've seen that play out. Um, I'll give my answer because I have a feeling that Doug's going to gonna go off in, in some kind of uh, – yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. wishy-washy Wednesday now, apparently. Yeah, there um, we go. I, and my my answer is kind of along the same lines, but I think it's I think it is it's it's that it's that opposing talent, it's that opposing NFL talent finding its moment. Um, and actually, NFL talent probably need to be the right way to describe it because someone like Juice Williams, as we talked about with the 2007 uh, example, that he was not going to be an NFL quarterback. That he was a he was a college quarterback. He was built for a certain style of football, and that guy was not going to go play NFL football. But he could be a college star, and he could have his moment that day, and he kind of did, even though it wasn't a big passing day like we said. He could go out there and lead a team to victory. Um, we obviously saw this with, with Rondell Moore. Um, I think you saw it as much, though, with the other time that Purdue beat Ohio State recently, the 2000 2000- uh, what would you say? It was 2006 game, Doug? 2009. With, uh, 2009 game, right, with Ryan Kerrigan, a guy who's now been an all uh, uh, an, um, a Pro Bowl linebacker in the NFL for Washington now for several years, um, was a defensive end at the time, one of the great defensive players in the Big Ten, and was kind of hidden on the Purdue team a little bit, and just for whatever reason that day was able to go out and just take over a game. I think that's ultimately that's how these games are won. We could talk about all of these sort of – you can talk about schematic things and coaching certainly plays a part. You can talk about intangible things, but really at the end of the day, I think the re- the way that other teams beat Ohio state is that other team, other players step up into the moment and, and get the job done. Um, I, yes. Ohio state a lot of times has to, has to play short of its best, but I don't think that necessarily means they're just giving a win away. The other team has to capitalize. And the way that that happens very often is teams stepping up and, having their best moment. I think I agree with both you guys. I will say uh, quickly on the 15 
games that, again, that I'm referencing here, the breakdown on home and away, one was a bowl. Uh, the other 14 is seven and seven, home and away. And I have long – you guys know where I stand. I, I, don't, I don't think home and away is a huge thing. However, of the most recent – one, two, three, four, five – five of the last six were on the road. Purdue 09's on the road, Miami, Florida 2011 on the road, Virginia Tech's home, but at Penn State and 16 at Iowa at Purdue. So five of the six on the road. If you want to look for that, and I think you guys have pushed that a little more lately. It's like when we're looking for stuff, even when we were talking about like on the Indiana podcast this year, could Indiana be an upset thing? Well, it's like, well, but Indiana's in Columbus. All right, so then maybe it's like now we're looking Indiana in 2021. What Might that fit it? I still don't put that super high on my list. One of the other things that I wondered about, I didn't know, like, is there a secret genius coaching the team? That, that is it a mediocre team with a great coach? Because that's the Saban example in 98, right? It's like, oh, who ruined John Cooper's best year? Oh, the greatest college football coach of all time who had not yet shown it? Is that who ruined Ohio State's season 22 years ago? Oh, that makes sense now. It's Nick Saban. Well, they only went six and six. It wasn't the Michigan State team. It's Nick Saban, but that's not the deal. Let me run through this quickly. The 15 coaches who have sprung these upsets by my, our parameters, Jeff Brom, Kirk Ferentz, James Franklin, Frank Beamer, Al Golden, Danny Hope, Ron Zook, Randy Walker, Barry Alvarez, Glenn Mason, Lou Holtz, Barry Alvarez again, Ron Turner, and Nick Saban. Alvarez proved to be a thorn in the side. The D'Antonio upsets along the way didn't fit our parameters because they were always ranked. But I do think maybe there's a little bit of that there. Barry Alvarez is great. He got Wisconsin up sometimes. Saban was Saban. D'Antonio was a really good coach. But like Ron Zook? Ron Zook in 2007? What are you talking about? Danny Hope? Danny Hope was an was a Ohio State killer. Danny Hope didn't do anything else at Purdue. So it's not exactly coaching either. I don't think it's home and away. I don't think I, it's coaching. I and, almost said coaching, and Danny Hope was the reason it didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Although, and I would not put Danny Hope and Ron Zook in the same category either. I mean, Ron Zook had, had good success at Florida. He won back-to-back bowl games with Illinois. It wasn't quite the same thing as Danny Hope at Purdue. And, and some of this, um, it's like, of course – of course, of course, coaching fits, fits in some because as Stephen, you know, you're sort of saying it's like if there's something about the game plan, it's something about somebody taking advantage of something, right? That it's mm-hmm. so, you know, Bud Foster's defense, the Bear defense, we talked about it a lot back in 14. Virginia Tech had a really good defensive game plan that befuddled Ohio State's coaches and befuddled JT Barrett. So Frank Beamer's a Hall of Fame coach, whatever, you know, there's some good stuff in there. Some of it is coaching. I guess in the end, and, and the thing that I wanted to happen here was it to be a guide. What can you look for? So my overall answer is 91%. Like, do you want it to be 98? Like, what do you expect? They win 91% of the time when they're ranked and the opponent's not. So, so is this just the price of doing business? Is that the answer, right? That if something's, 91% effective, wouldn't you feel pretty good about it? Be like, oh, like if Steph Curry shoots 91% from the foul line, people don't go, oh, man. Remember that game two weeks ago when he was 13 of 14 from the foul line? Remember that miss, how it was a little bit left 
and it hit the rim and spun out. Like, what happened on that shot? And that's the thing. It's only a problem then with the other, to your, to your point, the other, you know, 91%, 91% is only a problem when the 9% shows its face. Right. So I would maybe like off, you know, if there's no season, maybe that'll be a project. What are the, what are the other major programs numbers? Like are there teams that are at 98%, but when you do a 20 year period, it's not going to be because as we've said a million times, Ohio state's been the most consistent program in the country. So it's going to be hard, but I can try to find, but it's when you're ranked and the other team's not, I can get into that. So I'll be curious to see what Alabama and USC and Texas and their heyday, what it is. But if I'm going to look for something or give advice, I'm going to side with basically what you guys said. And I'm going to couple it two things. One is an Ohio State weakness that matches up with the strength of the opposing team. Sometimes it's hard to see it ahead of time. Nathan, you were exactly right about Ryan Kerrigan. During that game, it was like, wow, Ryan Kerrigan. Before that game, and it wasn't just because I don't know any opposing players – it wasn't like, like, it's like, who's Ryan Kerrigan, right? It's like Ryan Kerrigan became Ryan Kerrigan like that day. So it was hard to see Ryan Kerrigan coming. Some of the other stuff you can see coming, but when you're doing the matchup, when you're doing the matchup page in the newspaper, if there's that one spot where the mediocre opponent has an edge on Ohio State, do you think that edge is enough to swing a game? So that's what I would say. Look for that. And then the other thing is, if you hear from guys like us, that we feel something. And like I said, I've only felt it maybe one time in 15 years, maybe two, but we'll keep you on the lookout for that. If a team is irrationally overconfident, if they seem out of sync in practice, if they're just talking about stuff weird, if the coach seems on edge for no apparent reason, right? I think there's a little bit to that. So that's the formula. And, you know, you guys don't see that. That's on us to try to deliver that to you. But um, other than that, my main answer is 9% of the time something screwy happens and maybe the answer is there is no common denominator. I think that might be very true. I think that each of these is unique, that there's unique circumstances that play into the kind of upset we're talking about. Again, it's not just a game where, where Ohio State was favored and they happened to lose. It's a game that nine times out of 10 or 10 times out of 10, you would expect them to beat that team. And this is the one exception to the rule. And, and those things sometimes maybe only occur because of the very specific circumstances of that team on that day versus Ohio State on that day. And, and, and like, for instance, just for we, the things that – Go ahead. Go ahead, Doug. Maybe just because we've been throwing out a bunch of these ideas and maybe that's just what it is. That 9% is at some point – someone's going to have two or three of those happen at the exact same time. You're going to get upset. Perfect storm. Yeah. And like, for instance, we didn't cover like the 2010 Wisconsin loss. Ohio state elevates to number one in the country. They go to Wisconsin, Wisconsin returns the opening kickoff for a touchdown. The building shakes so hard. I bet you they had earthquake ratings in Madison, but that's a good Wisconsin team. That's like on the road in the big 10 against a good top 20 Wisconsin team. So, like, Wisconsin was just good and played really well and was at home in a really tough place to play. And so, yes, of course that's an upset. And Ohio State fans would say, man, I can't believe we lost to Wisconsin. But, again, that – I mean, that is going to happen, right? So, this is – that's not what we were talking about here. And, again, we weren't talking about 
Michigan State in 2015 or Michigan State in 2013, when, of course, Ohio State was a favorite. But sometimes it's like, man, they're really good. I mean, Connor Cook played really well in 2013. That Michigan State team, they had some defensive dudes. Like, they had a lot going on. They, you know, I never – in that moment, I remember, like, guaranteeing that there's no way Ohio State's going to go lose this game. But Wisconsin, I mean, Michigan State in 2013, the Big Ten Championship, they're in the Big Ten Championship. They're a good team. Um, so it's, 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 it's more than that. When it really comes out of nowhere, sometimes, sometimes the answer is it's just the 9%. We're going to come back after the break. We're going to talk to Bob Asmussen from the Champagne News Gazette to give us a little bit of insight on one of the teams Ohio State will try to avoid an upset against in 2020, and that is the Illinois Fighting Illini. Stay tuned. We're back on Buckeye Talk. Before I kick it over to Bob Asmussen, I wanted to discuss today's news from Ohio State football, today being Tuesday, and that's that they have resumed workouts. They were voluntary workouts when they stopped. They can now be mandatory workouts where you get to have coaches present. At least that's what the NCAA said. This is the schedule that's set up. They've crossed the threshold where you can have coaches supervising workouts now. Ohio State has said they are still voluntary workouts in that if an athlete feels like they don't want to participate because of the COVID threat, that's not going to be held against them. But um, mandatory just shifts it into the kind of supervision that you can now have and, and some of the things that are available for teams. So it was less than a week. I mean, it was last Wednesday when Ohio State made the announcement that it was pausing voluntary workouts because there had been a spike in positive COVID tests. And now it's Tuesday, and they're saying they're going to resume again on Wednesday. They originally said they were resuming Tuesday, but that was a, a miscommunication. It'll actually be Wednesday before they restart. So I think this is good news for Ohio State. And for anybody that was in this position, it can only be seen as a positive thing. And maybe that the Ohio State doing the prudent thing and taking a step back, reassessing, getting some more tests done, and then moving forward. I think as we kind of speculated that night, Stephen and I, I think that's what's played out here. I don't know that it makes me think it's any more or less likely that we'll play football this fall because I don't know that one thing has a lot to do with the other. So I will say – this continues to be a very difficult discussion. I wish Ohio State released the numbers because that would help us all understand things. Um, but it does feel like to me, because you see a lot of people read Ohio State pausing workouts as, and by a lot of people, I mean the people I follow on social media, as like a, uh-oh, like a screeching tire record scratch kind of thing, right? Like, oh man, Ohio State paused workouts. Add that to the list. And it turns out they paused them for less than a week, right? And now they're back because they feel good about it. So you do see other things of other schools testing, releasing numbers, and they are releasing things like we tested a bunch of people and our positivity rate was very, very, very low. So I will say at the moment, when you hear something like this from Ohio State, that they're starting again, when you see enough other tests around the country, that it doesn't seem like the, uh, there are a gazillion programs out of control right now, I actually feel okay about college football handling this right now, but the country at large is a mess. And by going, going off what's happening in the country, my guess at the moment is like, we're not going to be doing anything in September, much less college football. But if you're going by college football and you somehow believe 
that the rest of the country at large can get it turned around at all. I feel like college football is kind of getting a handle on this. And Ohio State restarting workouts adds to that. Yeah, I think Ohio State did the logical thing there where any number that wasn't zero, I know Michigan State had zero positive tests come back, but any number over zero, you stop and reassess. I disagree with that. Really? There are, there are places all over the country that have positive tests that aren't stopping. It's not like every program that has a positive test stops I think that, But I think to have a plan where you see how things go and then you can reassess it and, you know, kind of adjust to how that – adjust to things, I think that's not a bad plan to have. That's it's not the plan most places have. The, the rule – it is not like every school is – if it's not a zero on positive tests, they shut the workouts down. That is not what's happening. So I'm not saying that, like, it's not okay that Ohio State did this. I don't think it's the assumption that if you have any positive tests, you immediately need to shut everything down. I think the, I thought the plan was, like, you isolate those people and test. You have to put safety first. But at some point, if you're going to do it, you can't shut everything down every time you have a single positive test. So I understand being cautious, but this is part of the issue with Ohio State. We don't know the numbers. They're, not, yeah. they're giving us half the story. But I'm not going to criticize them for shutting down, but I will tell you it's not the norm because other people are working out with a positive test rate of more than zero. Yeah, and we don't know. Again, they said that there was testing last week, and the results of those tests are what prompted them to halt practice, halt workouts. Um, the numbers we heard were that it were not anywhere near some of the bigger numbers that were out there, even just among football teams, let alone through the entire athletic department. So. I, that's what led me to say that night that I thought this seemed like they were just from all indications were that this was kind of just them trying to take a, a prudent stop. Now today they said that they did more testing Monday. Those results came back today and the medical professionals looked at those results and said that they felt it was prudent, whatever to return to practice workouts on Wednesday. They didn't say that there were no more positives though. So I think that's, what's interesting is, is what, data there it leads them to make those decisions and uh, I, I agree I think it's unfortunate that they're not giving the public more in, more information about this um, I, I don't agree with the the idea that um, by telling me that three out of however many tests they did came back positive that it helps me identify who they who those players are any more than telling me that there were positive tests at all as they did last week helps me identify who the players are. I don't see how the number makes a difference. So um, I think it would, it would, it would bring some transparency, transparency to this, help the public understand what's going on a little bit. Um, but that's their decision. I, I, I think it, it does though. I agree with Doug that it, it can't, you can't help but see this as being at least a half step back in the direction of positive momentum. But I think, I still think that the, there are a lot of thresholds that still have to be crossed in terms of, playing person-to-person practices in terms of when the entire student body comes back to campus. Those things are still big X factors that are going to – new barriers are going to have to be crossed. I will say it's like I don't – I'm not criticizing Ohio State for stopping. Not at all. If, if that no. was the – if they felt that was the right thing to do, then absolutely do the thing. But I just – you don't get bonus points. Like secretive and overly cautious is not the exact way I think you should be doing this. So I'm, I'm saying overly cautious only because we don't know the numbers, but yet there's enough reporting. And I know, Nathan, you had people telling you that it wasn't a super high amount of numbers. 
necessarily, but they yet they did pause it. Okay, I get it, but well, it's just hard, and I don't. You don't get extra credit for not telling us. You know what I mean? I just don't yeah. want to. It, it, it bothers me a little bit how they're handling us. Yes, caution, but there's a balance to all of this, and I'm just saying, like, to me again, to be realistic about how this is going to happen. If everybody went by the rule of anything more than zero, we shut it down, then you may as well just shut everything down right now. I'm not saying that's going to be the rule every time. I just, um, maybe the first time, just to, and then you kind of work from there. The, 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 it's Kate's case. I mean, when, if somebody comes back, if they test every athlete and one positive comes back, then I think there are ways that you look. You, you can they do contact tracing they do has that player been in contact with other players if it's a guy who got back that day and came right to the woody and hasn't seen any other players or woman because there's other athletes working out too then there's no reason to shut all the workouts down just because that person tested I, and even if that person had had contact with a couple of other athletes i don't think you would do it i i agree the other thing i think to mention on from what doug was saying we don't want to go too long with this because i did also talk to bob asmussen uh about a lot of these COVID related things. So we want to go right into that. But I will say in terms of Ohio State's timing last week, that happened on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, the Big Ten announces that it's canceling the non-conference games, which changes the timeline potentially for how teams are getting ready for a season. And I'm not sure those two things weren't unrelated. That Ohio State maybe had an idea that it had some time to play with that if it wanted to be a little bit more cautious, it wasn't going to interrupt the timeline of getting ready for whatever season is going to come. No, Gene knows what's up. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Gene Smith knows everything that's going on. Right. So, again, right. again, I just don't want to come across as anti-caution. I Correct. am as pro-caution as anybody that I know. I love He literally caution. is in he, – he was laminated three months ago. He's been doing this podcast through the, uh, just a tiny hole cut in the bubble that he lives in now. Because I will say, you don't get credit for caution most of the time because caution is a sacrifice. There is a sacrifice as, as part of caution, but every time somebody out in the world injures themselves by doing something that I would never do, I kind of want credit for that. You. Yeah, you get some validation. Like, like, hey, maybe you had fun doing that thing the first hundred times you did it, and I would have had fun too, but then the hundred and first time you did it and you broke 30 bones – I'm not really going to feel sorry for you because you weren't feeling sorry for me the hundred times you had fun and I was sitting in my basement. So I love caution. I think it is one of the personality characteristics I would value most in someone. It is one of the things that I most want to pass on to my children. And it doesn't mean you can't have any fun, but you might be able to have more fun spread over a longer period of time if you aren't destroying your body every couple years by doing something bonkers. So pro-caution on behalf of whatever Ohio State did, I just wish we knew more about it. I agree. And here's another perspective around the Big Ten on COVID, on a lot of other things. Here's Bob Asmussen from the Champagne News Gazette. We're joined today on Buckeye Talk by one of the veteran guys in Big Ten football reporting. This is Bob Asmussen from the Champaign News Gazette. Bob's been there for over 30 years. He's been on the Illini beat since 1996, which is the year that I graduated high school, which I'm going to throw in there just to make Bob wow. feel a little bit older. <laughs> wow. Was, why, was, why, why do we have to go there, Nathan, right away off the start? I, really, I, 
that was pretty mean of me. I only bring it up. Well, yeah. you just you actually just uh, wrote a, a little column that included some stuff about me because I grew up in central Illinois uh, reading Bob and and working kind of alongside Bob later on when I was working at the, the commercial news in Danville. So uh, been an admirer of his work for a long time. So thanks for joining us, Bob. We appreciate it. Of course. Yeah, I'll do anything you ask. <laughs> well, even, even though good. you made fun of me, even though you made fun of me, but I I get that I'm old. But luckily, I have Lauren Tate, who's a lot older than me, so I've always got him to kind of. <laughs> That's true. Problems. The longer you so, can keep yeah. Lauren around, everybody else will look like a spring chicken, I suppose. Right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I hope he I hope he takes that in a good nature too. Although, does yeah. Lauren listen to a lot of podcasts? Do you think? I'm guessing probably not, but probably more than he would think. Oh, okay, good. He's got kind of got all technology wise uh, later in life, so it, it, it scared me when he first found the internet because it obviously made our life harder. But yeah, it's a little, I, I'd be surprised if he. I don't think he'll listen to this one, but I'll tell him about it. Gotcha. Um, well, a lot to talk about. Obviously, we're going to get into the Illinois Ohio State game. Obviously, Ohio State plays at Illinois this season in Champaign the week before the big game, the Michigan game, and you're the Illinois next up in kind of our series of these previews we've been doing of the opponents Ohio State will play in 2020. Obviously the big story in football right now though, is whether or not any of those games are going to get played. And we don't know what order they're going to get played in because the big 10 announced last week, it's lopping off the non-conference games, just playing a conference season. And I think it's kind of up near exactly what that schedule is going to look like. So what from your perspective there in Champaign, I guess, what, what's the Illinois football perspective on the COVID-19 situation and how this is playing out? Well, first of all, on the schedule, I think they realize they have to be open-minded about what's going to happen. Uh, Tom Deanhart from, uh, from Purdue, who covers Purdue came up with the idea or suggested that they might like flush the schedule and mm-hmm. just cover, which is, I think is very possible. So I think, Everybody here, and I think everybody in the Big Ten, has to kind of be able or willing to roll the punches, do what they have to do. But I think generally the concern here, of course, is can they do this? Can they do it healthy? And can they do it you – know, there's a big money component, but I think that's less of a concern here, it should be, than how they do this and keep everybody safe. And I'm not t- just talking about the players because, you know, they're pretty healthy guys. They probably could, could survive this, but I think you worry about Lovey Smith and his staff and some older guys on his staff and older guys in the department and older guys in town. So uh, you want to make sure everybody, not just the players, stay healthy. So the first issue should be and seems to be what the health situation is going to be going forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we were talking about this on our podcast for Tuesday as well. And kind of my point was somebody's going to have to be creative. Like this is a time where creativity is kind of going to be at a premium. I think if, if there's people within the big 10, whether that's the, the new commissioner, Kevin Warren and kind of the background he's coming from, which is um, could maybe be a more progressive or creative perspective. I don't know. We'll see. We're, we're still obviously getting to know him a little bit or whether it's the ADs within the conference coming up with something on their own. Like it just feels like this is a time for new ideas and thinking outside the box to try to figure out a way to have football. If you're, if you're too reliant on the strictures you've worked in in the past, they don't really apply to what's going on right now. No, no question. I saw something about mop, mop guards, some company, I can't remember, or maybe it was the people that make sunglasses, uh, 
tell me, yes. oh, hopefully he's making mouth guards. Well, that's kind of genius, right? Come up with ways to make this safer. And I think you're exactly right. May, think outside the box. You can't play football. Football in 2019 is not what's going to be 2020. There's, there's no way. It's going to have to be different. It's going to be, you know, I think they're going to play tackle football. I don't think there's going to be touch or flag football or anything. But I think they're going to be have to be more open to whatever ideas it will take, whatever it will take to make the game happen. I think that's what they'll do because they're too, too much too much at stake. And, and what happens – what football looks like in 2020 is not what football is going to look like in 2021 either. I feel like it's just this singular one-off thing. Um, we're seeing that obviously like so. a – it's kind of like a 60 game major league baseball season with all these new rules are coming up with that I think are probably going to be singular to that season. And then we return mostly to normalcy, hopefully, like you say in the future, but yeah, I'm um, hoping that's right. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm rooting for, I'm never rooted for anything as much as I'm rooting for a vaccine. So vaccine right. to develop, develop said it's going to be the biggest hero, not just here in the U S but in the world. So let's just root for that. And you know, that that's obviously I think we're all kind of rooting for that. The sooner they come up with that, the better. And and even if it's to the smaller things like the the equipment stuff you were just talking about, I think it's just a matter of how quickly can that happen. You know, can they make real breakthroughs in you know face coverings, face shields, whatever, to make football safer for players by September? I mean, because the clock is just ticking so fast on that. Like, and I don't know how how viable it is. I know they've already had some. I, Shut came up with the a face shield that it can just attach to, to any helmet, which I think is a positive thing, but is that enough? Is there something else that players that have to wear? I wrote a story where talking to uh, medical people and, 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 and other people about whether the idea of players wearing masks is viable at all. And it seems to be obviously a lot of concern about whether that would be something that athletes playing at that level could do so it's just the time is getting so urgent we we could have had this discussion in march and there would have been a lot of concerns there already were because they were shutting down spring practice and everything but it just seemed like so long for them to like figure things out and get on the right trajectory and that trajectory is going in the wrong direction right now right i think the country was going down 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 which they we hoped it would i think that we'd be having a completely different conversation and parts of the world are being able to do that they're able to have sports, uh, contact sports, in fact. So I think we well, I don't want to say we've messed up. We've clearly not, not taken a lead on this thing. We're, we're behind. But I think to the credit of the schools, they're trying to make it work. So we asked about face masks. Well, I think, again, you do what you have to do. Is it impactful, impactful for a football player to wear a face mask? Well, me, me, yes and no. Uh, they wear stuff all the time. They have things in their mouth. So why not add that extra layer of protection, which we know, I saw a study maybe yesterday, that if you have a face mask on that's fairly thick, the virus or your, whatever you spit out, it only goes an inch or two. Well, that seems like a great way to cut down on all this stuff. So again, let science rule this, but you're right. I wish they had gotten on this earlier. Maybe they did. Maybe they were doing things behind the scenes. And they're, they're locally here in Champaign, there was a reluctance to say a whole lot before they knew anything, before they knew the direction right. the conference is going, the direction of the uh, NCAA is going and all that. So I think they're trying to be cautious, but there's, that's probably running out of time for that. So as much as I 
believe that creativity could be the answer here. I'm really skeptical of one of the options that's been floated, which is moving this season to the spring and then having essentially in 2021, you'd have a spring season and then come back that fall and have another season. What do you think the viability of that is? It just, in the day of an age of player safety, I have a lot of skepticism about them trying to play certainly two full seasons in the same calendar year. And even if you were to manipulate it and do sort of a truncated, maybe a conference only season in the spring, I think you'd still have to come back and have a, a shortened season in the fall too. Otherwise you're, you're overloading these athletes based on what they're, they're used to, to doing as far as physical exertion and the, in, you know, in a time of where you're worried about um, concussions and, and traumatic brain injury, you're, you're exposing them to more games and more contact that way too. I agree with you totally. I think you can't ask the players to do that much. Remember, they're and I, of course they're on scholarship. They get the room and board and all that, but they're basically not not employees. They're they're free labor, and it's unfortunate that they would even think about it having two seasons like that in such a short amount of time. I don't think that's practical. I think I think what, if they go past the fall, if they can't play in the fall. And I think they just have to decide the next football season will be in 2021 in the fall there. I think I think their spring idea was something kicked around, maybe to placate some people and get people thinking about something else. But there's no guarantees it'll be any better in spring right now. So I think I think that's probably not the way that I would go, certainly. I think you try to play this fall if you can, safely. If you can't, work on everything else off the field get everything you can done, and 2021, come back full in the fall, play those schedules. And actually, Illinois in 2021, up in Dublin against Nebraska. Right. We'll see if that that game happens. Right now, it's still on, so I'm kind of look, looking forward to that game, actually. So hopefully yeah, it get played. But I I don't think pushing football back to spring makes any sense right now at all. So obviously late last week, like I said, the Big Ten announced it's not playing any of its non-conference games for 2020. It's going to be a conference-only schedule. Um, for I think for Ohio State fans, as much as they might have been looking forward to some of them making a trip to Oregon, and, and I also think that's a big loss just for college football to have games like that taken off the schedule. In general, the Ohio State non-conference schedule is just about filling out maybe getting a couple of semi-competitive games or halves you're filling out a a schedule it's 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 not what the season kind of revolves around in a lot of ways and I, I don't think that's necessarily true at Illinois either but I'm, I'm curious about the Illinois perspective of losing those three early games they were supposed to play Illinois State Bowling Green which is one of the teams on Ohio State schedule as well and Connecticut for us for a program like Illinois that is building back towards viability I think it could be significant to lose those games. Now we don't know what, if any postseason format they're going to try to put together for 2020. It's possible that they're not going to worry about the lesser bowls and those things this year anyway, but those seem to, would seem to be potentially important games for a program like Illinois, not only to potentially get wins, but to be building towards the season as they're trying to kind of regroup and rebuild. How do you see like if, if this losing those three games at the start of a season mean more to a program like Illinois in some ways? Oh, definitely. Yeah, all along here, for two or three years, Levy Smith has been pointing toward 2020. He knew we have a veteran team, a lot of seniors, uh, offensive line that has four or five starters back, returning quarterback. They, they've been pointing to this year, and 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 part because of the schedule. So they were looking certainly three no starts. 
I think there's no no question. Illinois State, Illinois State would have been the hardest game of those three. Yeah. I think Illinois would have been able to beat them. I think it would have been a good game, but I think that's that's a game that Illinois should win. Bowling Green, UConn, Illinois should beat pretty easily. So that's three and all. Then the first conference game for Illinois would be Rutgers out there, which again, not a great trip, but a, a team they, they have beaten over the years, new program, new staff, should be able to beat them. So there's four and all. Fifth game is at Nebraska, uh, again, in Lincoln, a place that Illinois has not won since. You'll love this. Since 19, I believe, 19, 1924, I believe, was the last wow. Nebraska, maybe 23. Red Grange was playing. I know that's 24. They've won at Nebraska in 24. So that's been a while. So that's been a hard play for Illinois to play. But with no crowd there or a small crowd there, that place becomes a lot, much less – of a problem for Illinois. So that could have been a 5-0 start. And then they come back and Illinois doesn't play as Purdue. And that, again, winnable game at home against Purdue, the team they beat last year. So you're talking about potential for a 6-0 start if everything worked well. And the back half of the Illinois schedule this year was going to be dreadful, really hard. Iowa, Ohio State, you know, team after team, but really good teams, Wisconsin, Minnesota. So really tough. So they had a great chance to start well. They they kind of have to hold on for the back half, but yeah, losing those three non-conference games, chance to build momentum is just gigantic for Illinois. And if you look at it to 2021, Illinois schedule there is awful. They're going to be losing all these seniors that have played a key role for four years. They open with Nebraska in Ireland, then they play at Virginia the next week, which is going to be a really good team. Schedule next year is really hard, so. I think everybody pointed to 2020 as the year that Illinois could kind of make some hay. And that's not going to be – that's gone now, really. You mentioned, you know, Lovey Smith looking forward to 2020, and I'm going to come back to him in a second. But just in big, in terms of bigger picture, like we talked on this podcast, I think a couple months ago, um, about Big Ten programs in general and which ones we felt like were, I don't know, underachieving, I guess, would be kind of the point. And I think we've always looked over here and, and I growing up in central Illinois and following the big 10 all this time, I've always sort of seen Illinois as kind of a sleeping giant. Like you've got Chicago and St. Louis right there. You, you're the flagship university for the state. There is tradition there. And it seems like Illinois can never really sustain periods of like being really good and I, I I'm curious your thoughts on why that's been like what what's maybe been the missing ingredient for Illinois to capitalize on op- the opportunity it has to be a consistently strong football program well I've been here 31 years and there's been back-to-back bull wins once that happened one time under runs while well, Ron Zuck and, and, and it, it got him fired Right, got fired. The problem here has been not being able to find somebody they could stick with, somebody they could live with. They had coaches that had moments. Ron Turner had moments. He won the Big Ten in 2001. Ron Zook had really three really good years in Illinois in seven years, but they fired him. And I, I, I would say firing Zook was a big mistake in Illinois, a huge mistake in Illinois, something that they're paying for, what, 10 years later. So that was, that was dumb. That was an incorrect decision. But they did it. They've been unwilling to do what some other schools have done, which is live through some painful years with a new coach. I think Wisconsin with Barry Alvarez and Iowa with Kirk Ferentz showed what you have to do. You have to bite, bite through those bite through those tough years and live with the guy, let him build his program, build the brand, 
and you try to get to be consistent. Illinois has lacked consistency here basically my whole time here. Uh, when I first got here, John McEvick was head coach. They went to Bulls four years in a row. Looked like it was going to be, be a good situation for a long time. Then Texas called him. He had to go. So he went to Texas. I believe he's the only coach in all history in football to leave for a better job. Okay. So perceived better job. Only coach yeah. in all yeah. history in football. When, whereas you look at basketball, it's happened a lot of times in basketball. Bill sure. And Lon Kruger and different guys. So that's happened a lot. But in football, one time, John McAvey went from Illinois to Texas. Had he stayed, God knows what it would have, would have, would have been. Or if the school had been willing to fight through those tough years, hang on with the guy, but they've made some really bad choices. So, yes, lack of consistency has been huge. And you're right, there was a, they were a sleeping giant. I've always felt that. When people say they can't win here, I just think that's dumb. Uh, Dick Buck has played here. Red Grange played here. There's history. There's a great stadium. There's a nice community. There's a lot of, there's, it says good school. Well, there's a lot going on here. And the fact that they're talking about never being able to put this together this long run is really awful and really almost unforgivable, actually. So, but, but what's, right. But what's happening right now with, with Levy Smith, it seems to be a little bit of a departure from the, you know, maybe in other eras of Illinois football, he wouldn't have had the chance to stick around this long. And you know, I got to know Josh Whitman, the Illinois AD, a little bit when I was in Lafayette, Indiana. He's a Lafayette native. He played at Illinois. Um, so I got to know him a little bit for some stuff that I wrote over there. I guess where do things sort of stand right now with the fan base? And do they still – believe that, that that something is building here I mean because last year seemed to be pretty critical even just getting back to a six win plateau as far as probably restoring some level of fan confidence in, in this project that's unfolding oh no question I think I think Josh Whitman has Lily Smith back and I think that's the most important thing so the fans can do whatever they want but Levy Smith is not going anywhere Josh Whitman, Josh Whitman is gone all in with Levy Smith he gave him time. He gave him enough money to make it justified. Gave him a good staff. Gave him this beautiful new building. They have a great indoor facility slash training center. That's awesome. One of the best in the conference. So they've done everything. They made a commitment to the program and therefore to Levy Smith. They gave him a contract extension last year, which I think was smart. So they are doing everything. And I think you're right. I think Josh Wedman, I think he sees the big, big, bigger picture. I think he realizes we can't keep turning over eight coaches here. It's never going to happen. But if we stick with somebody who has a good idea, has a great reputation amongst the football, I think it makes sense to have Levy Smith give him his best shot. So I think Levy Smith, I think last year what they did was bought Levy Smith more time. So I think if they have a good year in 2020, if they play, or come back in 2021 and have a good year or a decent year, Levy Smith's going to be here as long as he wants to be here, honestly. He's 62, but he's a healthy 62. I could see him coaching another eight to 10 years easily. And so I, I think he's the guy here. And I think that's smart. I think it's dumb to keep coaching every year. It makes no sense. So they, Josh Whitman is trying to what he hopes, hopes is a solution. I think it can work. So I think the question that people had about Levy Smith coming back from the NFL to take over at Illinois was – 
how he was going to fit from a recruiting standpoint. How has that gone? I mean, Illinois isn't someone who's up competing like Ohio State is, obviously, for top five, ten classes. But are they doing what they need to do, or is there still work that needs to be done in order for them to to take this next step and to to be to have last year be kind of the the baseline of, of where they're at instead of what they're aspiring for? They've done some good things in recruiting, but there are, there are some some flaws. I think they've under recruited Illinois and the state of Illinois. I think you always want to have a base of players from here. I think those players, I don't want to say they play harder, but I think there's a, some motivation when you're playing for the in-state school to play well and also in pressure ground when you're not as inclined to leave the program. There's a lot of great reasons to have players from Illinois. And plus the state has good players. So I think they've done a poor job, not poor job, but just pretty average job of that. Last year, the, the recruiting class last year had no players from the line. And in common class, there's no players from the line. The common class in 2021 has one player from the line so far. So I think that's been a flaw. They have gone and found other areas they feel comfortable recruiting. Florida has been great. Texas to a lesser extent. They found places they can recruit. So that's good. But they need to – once I came here to here in 2004 – 2005, sorry, and knew the most, most important thing was getting good players here. So he went crazy, went recruiting all over the place. In Illinois first, but also Florida in Maryland, wherever he had to go. Found a bunch of great players, not just good players. Found a bunch of four-star, five-star guys, convinced them to come to Champaign, and build a team that went to the Rose Bowl. So I think that should be the ideal here. Aim for a top – right now, Illinois is, I think, number 53, according to rivals, in terms of rank, class ranking for 2021. That is too low. You won't build a program at number 53. But if you get to 30 or 25, which should be possible, given the possibility – given the recruiting in the state and out here, nearby areas – then you can then you're cooking with the gas to cool runs up. I think that'd be the key. Get move that class up to 25, move that class up to 30. Then it's going to be really tough to deal with. We're not just not just uh, good teams in Big Ten, but the great teams in Big Ten. So Ohio State and Illinois didn't play in 2019, but Illinois did sort of affect the Ohio State season in some ways because the week before Ohio State was to play Wisconsin, which was going to be this big, you know, top 10, maybe even top five teams showdown, Illinois beats the Badgers at home, big upset in Champaign. And obviously, you know, Ohio State going over to Champaign this year, I think that's something uh, is probably going to be, at least again, we assume that's what the schedule is going to be uh, for now. Um, that's something that's kind of present in Ohio State fans' minds. That's, it's a little bit of a warning. You've seen a team do that within the last calendar year. Um, what did that Wisconsin win mean for Illinois? Did you see it at the time as something that was maybe inevitable isn't the right word, but like they were kind of building towards a, a breakthrough moment. It was just a matter of when it was going to happen. Uh, no, no, <laughs> I, I was honestly, Doug, it was Illinois is a 31 point underdog here. Okay. Wisconsin was undefeated. They were playing great. They had Jonathan Taylor playing really well. The defense was good. I mean, they were really rolling, right? And they had some glitches earlier in the year. They had a game game or two. They didn't look great, but I thought they'd come in here to beat Illinois by 20, okay? They didn't do it. Illinois really played well in that game and had a clutch kick at the end by Jim McCourt. They had a bunch of great plays. And I think Wisconsin, frankly, kind of sat on the lead. They were up by 10. They kind of just regressed, and Illinois took advantage to their credit. 
but that game was so shocking. I would say of all the wins the Illinois had, my year, 31 years here coming to Illinois, I would put that at the top of the list in terms of shocking. I just didn't see it coming at all. There have been other games in the past. Uh, Illinois won in Columbus 2007, but I predicted that that win. So I thought Illinois would win that game, and they did. But I think that game, Wisconsin game, was one. It really got people – it really changed the opinion of Levy Smith and of where they were going. And all of a sudden, they won that game. They won three more in a row, and all of a sudden, they were, they were rolling. If they kept it going, won seven or eight games, that would have been a lot better. But even the fact that they were able to beat Wisconsin, that type of game was huge for Levy Smith and his program. So how does Illinois look at having Ohio State on its schedule? You can answer that, I guess, either from the program or from the fan base or whoever. But, like, it, you know, when I was growing up and it was a smaller Big Ten and you would play all of the teams more often. So Illinois and Ohio State played more often back then. Well, now you're looking at it might be every three, four years before you have these crossover games within the division. Um, does So how do they look at the, the year where that game kind of pops up on their schedule? When I got here, Illinois, and you can look this up, they kind of dominated Ohio State. Illinois, I think, won three or four, maybe five in a row in, in the Maccabeck temporary era. They won a lot of games against Ohio State, and then all of a sudden couldn't beat them because, of course, Ohio State changed coaches and got a bunch of great players in there, and they did a great job. But Illinois beat Ohio State a lot. So I think fans here for a long time kind of looked forward to the game. If it is obviously Ohio State is – power in the Big Ten, along with Michigan. I think people here thought, wow, that's a great game. I think now, if you ask the Illinois fans right now, a lot of them would want to see that game in the schedule, but they said, well, not, we're going to change things. We're not going to have to play Ohio State. I think people here might be fine with that. They might say, that's okay. We, we'll, we'll play them down the road because after that team, I've done my rankings. You're doing the rankings, too. I've got, I think I've got Ohio State right now at three. So right behind uh, – Maybe two, right behind Clemson. I have Clemson number one, but really high, so two or three. So that's a great team. No question, a lot of great players back. I think the coach staff there has done a fantastic job. Now, would it be appealing to have Ohio State here? In a normal time, yes, of course. That game would be sold out here. I think people would be fired up and look at it as the chance to beat a great team. But with no crowd or a small crowd, not going to be the same thing. So I really think if you asked, I don't think they'll admit this, but if you ask Levy Smith, can we, can you skip Ohio State this year? Is that okay? I think he'd probably say yes, but I don't think they'll say that publicly, but I'll say it for them. They, they would like to not play Ohio State this year or Penn State for that matter either. They would like not like to play them. They would like rather play no offense, Maryland, no offense, Indiana, no offense, uh, Michigan, even Michigan State, maybe leave Buckeyes and, we're going to come back to your AP ballot here at the end of the call. I did have a couple questions about the 2020 Illini. Um, specifically, let's start with the quarterback, Brandon Peters. Uh, you got a story up on, on newsgazette.com pretty recently about just kind of what has been happening with him in the offseason, kind of maybe some of the development that's going on there. Tell me what you thought of him as far as his 2019 performance and what Illinois is expecting him from him for 2020. This is a former Michigan quarterback, so it's a guy that Ohio State fans already know something about, even if they haven't really faced him. He's been, he's been really good. And, again, it's kind of a surprise that he came here. First of all, he had other options, but also the fact that he was able to produce. He was a clutch performer. 
when they did he missed a couple of games when they didn't play, they were really kind of a mess. So he was he's got I think everybody here is looking forward to it. Have have a really big senior year. He's got a very quiet kid, really, really quiet. I mean agonizingly quiet. Doesn't like to do interviews, does the interviews uh, when he has to, but doesn't care to perform. him, which is kind of a change for most quarterbacks here. Actually most quarterbacks here. And he but he's got he's a guy that strong arm, willing to run when he has to. He got that has the his his teammates have his back. I think they value him in terms of leadership. They value him in terms of the the sacrifice he put in. The fact that he's willing to take a hard hit to get a first down, that kind of thing. So he's kind of a leader by what by deed as opposed to what he says in the field. So I think people are pretty optimistic. To be honest, Rod Smith, the offense coordinator, he would say Brandon's going to have a big year. And I think big year being 3,000 plus yards, a bunch of touchdowns, lower, lower interception rates, uh, make some big plays, get the ball down the field a lot. They'll, they'll be more vertical this year than they have in the past because the running game is not quite as strong. So I think they've got like a lot of great potential there. So I think Brendan Peters having him back this year is a key to the whole thing. Well, Ohio State fans expect to have a really strong offensive line in, in 2020, and they will. They've got three returning starters, an All-American and Wyatt Davis, two or three five-stars really vying for the other two spots or, in the, or at least in the mix for those other two spots. So Ohio State's going to have a strong offensive line. But Pro Football Focus actually tweeted out recently the highest-graded Big Ten offensive line as far as just the returning players is Illinois. Um, so tell me about those guys and why that's going to be such a strength of this year's team. Well, they've all played a lot. That's that's critical. They've all played basically since their freshman year, mostly because they had to, because the, the talent here at offensive line when they first got here was not very good. And Levy Smith realized, I got to get some guys in there, get them plugged in, and have played for a long time. So it's Doug Kramer's center, a two-year captain, really. A, the, he's a leader. He's a guy that everybody looks to. And obviously, he's got a talented guy. Also, really good. They were missing him for late in the season. That was, again, it was that that hurt the team. Like Kendrick Green from Peoria is one of the guards. Again, really talented kid. That player they they put him threw him in there right away, and he did a good job. Uh, Alex Balchuski, probably the most talented guy. He was is an offensive tackle kid from the Chicago area. He's really really good. Again, played since he got here. So. I think he started as a freshman first year, first game he started. So maybe second game. But he's been a guy that's been in the lineup, just plucked him in. Verdari and Lowe, again, another tackle. I've been there forever and played up, played a ton. They have more starts in the offensive line now, I think, than they've ever had in terms of returning uh, experience. So the, this group, the only thing they're missing is they're missing one, one guard spot who will probably be, a, could be a combination of different people. Uh, Jake Cerny has been here a while. It's going to be somebody with experience. So this offensive line has a chance to be the, one of the best they've had there in a long time. And if you look at the his, history here, there have been some really good players come through here. So I think saying this group has a chance to be as good as maybe the 2007 or 2010 11 group is, is significant. So they think they're pretty well set there. So if Ohio State and Illinois end up playing their game as scheduled or – somewhere else on the schedule as, as the Big Ten figures things out. Who else on this team, on this Illinois team, should Ohio State fans know about as being, like, the most likely guys? If an upset happens, who are the most likely guys who would be making that happen? 
I'll give you, I'll give you two easy, pretty easy ones. Um, Josh Matter Baby is a receiver, had a great year last year, transfers from Southern Cal, big player guy, led the team against Michigan State. They don't want to win that game without him. It came back from 25 down. He made a big play after big play. He's a, he's a really good kid, a really smart kid. Guy that's been very vocal in the offseason about things going on in the world, which, again, everybody here has his back. Has his back. I wrote a column about how important it was for him to say what, it was, what was on his mind. So he's a key. He's first. They have a, a tight end named Luke Ford, transfer from Georgia, who was, I think, there with, with Justin Fields. A guy that didn't didn't get to play last year, unlike Justin, was not ruled eligible. They missed him, but he's got a guy that could be a big player. Player, uh, and then and then on defense, uh, I would say Nate Hobbs is a corner. He's going to his fourth year as a starter. A really talented kid. He could be one of those guys that has a big game or big, well, actually a big season in terms of interceptions, in terms of impact. On he always takes the hardest guy. So the best receiver, that's Nate Hobbs. He'll cover him. And if he can disrupt a team like Ohio State, Illinois will have a chance. So I think those three are a good place to start. So I'll be honest with you. I have not really thought about my AP ballot any more than when you and I talked a couple of weeks ago. No, I'm, probably gonna wait, yeah. <laughs> I'm probably going to wait until after the, the wedding and all this stuff I have coming up uh, later this week and in the next week. Um, mm-hmm. And who knows when that will actually be due now if we find out they're not playing football until uh, late September or something. Maybe they change the dates. I don't know. But um, I guess so you're saying you you see Ohio State in the mix as a national championship contender. I guess how are you balancing them against Clemson, Alabama, uh, Georgia, whoever else you're looking at at the top? I'm looking at my list right now, which won't change unless they don't play I've got Clemson number one. I think I think uh, Trevor Lawrence gives them a huge edge, and their running back Travis Etienne is great. So I love them. LSU, you know, until they lose, I say they got to be up there. And I've got Ohio State three right now. I don't think I'll change that. I got a lot of Big Ten teams in the top ten. I've got uh, I'm looking at this. I got Penn State five. I got I think Minnesota eight. No nine. I'm sorry, Minnesota nine. So I think Big Ten is going to be really good this year. But I, th- I think Ohio State's is certainly a playoff team in my mind. If everybody does what they're supposed to do. Everybody is healthy and everybody's able to play. I think – and you're right. You mentioned earlier the Oregon game. My goodness, I wish that game was going to be played. But without it, I think Ohio State, 10 games in the Big Ten, they could they could easily go 10-0 and therefore be a playoff team and – I, if they're not a playoff team at 10 and 0, then there should not be a playoff. <laughs> well, they've even talked like about Yeah, they've even talked about there being more than a four team playoff if they right. were able to get 2020 going. Sense. But um a, a lot of bridges to cross before they start talking about the playoffs, obviously. Right. So right. um hopefully though I get to make a trip back to central Illinois and hang out with you and, and see some football later on this fall. So thanks, Bob Asmussen from the News Gazette for joining us and uh Stay healthy and stay well, and uh, hopefully we see you later this season. You too, Nathan, and uh, congrats on the wedding, and good luck with everything, and just do whatever she says. <laughs> I'm, I'm working on it. I'm already – you know, fortunately, she's a reporter too, so right. I get some leeway with, with some things once in a while, but uh, – so that helps. It's very – she's very understanding with that, but uh, that, otherwise, awesome. uh, otherwise I'm, I'm trying to take your advice. Well, that's, that's what I've done for 30 – well, 26 years. My wife is also a reporter, so oh, – yeah. 
I, I completely get it. So yeah, like good luck. Have a great time and congrats again. Thanks and a lot, Bob. Me on. Bye. Thanks to, again to Bob for joining us. It was a, a big help as we continue to roll through Ohio State schedule. One more big game left coming up next week. The Big Wednesday Pod will be heavily featuring the game, Michigan at Ohio State. When will it happen? Some debate on that on the Tuesday pod. If you want to go back and listen to it, if in case you missed that. But uh, and one I last did, uh, th- I did put out guys and there to is the a- tech subscribers what they think Correct. about that, and we will on that Wednesday Michigan pod have the results of the survey of what the tech subscribers said of should the Ohio State Michigan game be played early to get it in, or do you keep it at the end of the regular season schedule? I think it may also be the take that I'm going to write for Wednesday morning because I uh, looked through some of the answers, and I don't think uh, I don't think my I don't think I was being as influential as I hoped I would be. So I'm going to take another shot at it and see if I can change some minds. Um, well, one last thing on upsets before we go, you know, we, we, we talked about, we spent a whole podcast talking about what sets the stage for an upset. So I thought it'd be interesting if we just each went and gave our one team that we think is most potentially responsible for giving that upset loss to Ohio state in 2020. Steven, did you have a team that jumps out at you? I do, um, and I had to kind of tailor it because Indiana might – I don't think Indi- – Indiana might not be ranked by the time they play Ohio State just based off they got Wisconsin, Maryland, and Rutgers, and then Michigan State and Penn State all before they play Ohio – they would play Ohio State. So depending on how those games go, especially you know, the Penn State, Wisconsin, Mich- Michigan State games, they might not be ranked, but they've got, a, at least from what we think, a pretty quality quarterback in Michael Penix, a solid coach. And they seem to be on the upscale at the end of last season. So I would, if there's an unranked opponent that could maybe take down Ohio State this year, it might be them. Just based I'm, off of like, just based off their schedule, they might not be right. That's all I'm. Yeah, still and talented enough to be one. The other thing was that I, Indiana shouldn't have been ranked or anywhere near ranked last year. They just weren't good. They beat eight teams that combined for 24 wins. They weren't good. They were fake good even at the, and they weren't even that good <laughs> to be fake. Good. They were fake. Not that good. Um, so I'm, they still have a lot to prove to me as far as how good they really are. But I do think the dynamic changes if, if Michael Penix is able to play in that game, because Ohio state obviously didn't get to see him last season in Bloomington. Um, Doug, who is your team? Yep. That's my answer too. Um, because again, it's, it's in Columbus, but that's not the, the, the deal breaker for me. It doesn't have to be on the road. Um, Tom Allen is the kind of coach I think that could do it. I think he, he reminds me a little bit of like a D'Antonio kind of thing. I think he'll have a good defensive game plan. He's a defensive-minded coach. Quarterback with some upside who maybe doesn't have to be great every week but could be great that game. And again, in trying to find maybe their strength against an Ohio State weakness, they do have a couple guys. Wap Fillior, who I said I didn't know who he was. He's a 1,000-yard receiver last year. Peyton Hendershot, who's had off-field issues, but – when we talked to Zach Osterman, he's a tight end who seems like he'll be back on the team this year. Um, those are their two leading receivers from last year going against, you know, maybe a younger Ohio State secondary. And if Tom Allen, like, devises a smart defensive game plan and then offensively you have a passing game that can challenge a younger secondary, I just think of all the teams, those are that's the team that has the stuff in place. And then again – Indiana hasn't beaten Ohio, I mean, whatever it is, Indiana, Ohio State, I think it's 33 straight years. I had it on a previous podcast. Indiana never beats Ohio State. So if, you, if there would be a vibe of like, is Ohio State 
feeling something, maybe they'd feel it against Indiana. So mostly, though, it's, it's about Tom Allen and then the Indiana passing game. 24 straight wins from Ohio State back to 1991. I mean, it's just bonkers. Yeah, so so I, Indiana just is almost like head and shoulders above. And it's just, again, five of the last six of the upsets that we talked about were away. So if that's what, if you're only looking for an away game, then you can't pick Indiana. But if you're open to either home or away, then I think Indiana is, is far and away the, the choice. And I actually wrote about this for a Buckeye Talk text Q&A uh, a couple months ago. I think it was maybe in April. And I, that was kind of how I prefaced this was that I, the thing that caught them the last couple of years and the thing that we even wrote about last year about it being a crossover game against the West that might trip them up, it just doesn't really seem to be as in the cards this year because they don't really play somebody on the road. I guess Illinois is the one example. And, and, and Bob made some good points about Illinois and some, some ways that they could be good this year. And um, I think you could maybe squint and get to where that game could be a threat, but I, I just don't really see it there. They, they were in that same Indiana boat last year, as far as being like, you know, um, happy to get to that six win range or whatever. And uh, not that exciting. And I, I, I need to see a lot more from them to, to get, too worried about them the team that I picked for that uh, piece that I wrote up and I, it's the team I'm going to stick with is Iowa and I think there are a couple of things I you mentioned the coaching before you've got a coach coming in who knows what he's doing obviously I picked that before Iowa went through some upheaval obviously this offseason so I don't know how much that throws them off their trajectory there may still be some things that are unresolved in exactly what coaching staff will be leading Iowa at the time of this game. So maybe that alone is the reason why I shouldn't pick them. Uh, but just in terms of personnel on the field, the point I made, the reason I thought I should pick Iowa was that when you've got an offense as talented as Ohio State, if you can find some way to shorten the game, if you can find some way to go out and get a running game going and keep the ball away from Ohio State, that's your best chance to beat them, I think, in 2020. Unless you – if you don't are also have um, – your own like super talented passing game, I suppose, you know, Tanner Morgan, if they play Minnesota, that, that changes the dynamic a little bit, but in the case of Iowa, where they do have a, um, an incoming quarterback that they like and, and uh, Spencer Petras will be a, a starter for the first time, but you've got a really strong offensive line. You've got a guy in Tyler Goodson, who was the first true freshman to lead Iowa in rushing last season, uh, three primary starters from the, re the receiving quarterback. This offense, I think, can move the ball. It's not going to be an Ohio State kind of offense, but it's the kind of offense that I think will be balanced enough to that it and with combination with the coaching staff would be able to find some things to move the ball against Ohio State and just keep the ball away from Ohio State and it, try to just shorten the game that way and keep it close until the end of the game. If you, if you, I don't think any team on this regular season schedule, I guess maybe with the exception of of Penn State. And even there, I don't think that's how that game would play out. I don't really see any of these regular season games, a team getting into a shootout with Ohio State and hoping to come out with a win. That just does not seem like the way that you beat Ohio State in 2020. Can I, can I drop one more bit of information before sure. we get out of here? Mm -hmm. um, so, of course, we know 2015 Michigan State loss. And again, Michigan State was ranked ninth then. That was 17-14, low scoring in the rain. We know that. Here are the point totals for the winning team of those last 15 upsets we referenced. Purdue, 18, Purdue 2018, 49. Iowa 2017, 55. Penn State 2016, 24. Virginia Tech in 2014, 35. Miami 2011, 24. Purdue 2009, 26. Illinois 2007, 28. Northwestern 2004, 33, but that was in overtime. Iowa 2004, 33. 
Wisconsin, 2001, 20. Minnesota, 2000, 29. South Carolina, 2024. Wisconsin, 1999, 42. Illinois, 1999, 46. Michigan State, 1998, 28. So every team scored in these 15 upsets scored at least 20. And there's some high-scoring affairs in there. So I might disagree with your point, Nathan. I think well, maybe I think the I'm... best chance to beat these guys – I don't know that you're going to stop Justin Fields and slow it down. You might just have to try to beat Justin Fields like 48-42. I see your point. I, I, I wasn't necessarily expecting this game to be 17-14 by, by what I meant by shorting the game, but maybe that makes it 28-24, something like that. But, also but your defense also has to execute yeah. too. Obviously. Yeah, there has to be a key stop in there at some point. Right, yeah. or, or that's where turnovers come into play, or that's yeah. where what happened against Purdue where they got in the red zone and just didn't execute early, and it, it helped kind of set the stage. Yeah, those, those sorts of things will have to play too. But um, that's my answer. But as Doug said, it's not a market down Monday, so I'm not held to that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Wishy-washy Wednesday. <laughs> that Two and a half big... hours, no answers. Buckeye talk. <laughs> we come up with a new great slogan every week. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't. I know we should do. Uh, we should gather those back. This is what we'll do. If there's no football this fall, God forbid, Doug, you, Doug, I want you to go back and listen to all the podcasts and come up with those throwaway taglines that we've like joked about, and then we'll let the yeah. texters vote on which one it should be. We'll do another poll that will blow up the texting. No, we'll do a bracket. <laughs> we'll do a, I do a bracket. We'll do a bracket. Yeah. We should do a, a bracket. Bracket because there's probably fifty of them at this point. Okay, that's even better. I like. And then we'll do going. a bracket. The winning slogan we'll put on a T-shirt with yep. the Buckeye Talk logo. We'll send all those shirts out to our tech subscribers, and then Ohio State will sue us for copyright infringement. Hey, you know I like this. If we talk for long enough on a given day, we come up with one good idea. So um, we'll see how that plays out. But thanks a lot for joining us on another Big Wednesday on Thursday. Doug is uh, going to have Phil Steele on Phil to Steele! talk about to talk about the coming college football season i assume and yes the magazine he actually finished making the magazine and so now he is doing his radio podcast tour of we're talking tour. about what's in the magazine oh we're we know phil's our guy phil's in cleveland man phil right. phil is phil is our guy so yeah so he's making an early appearance he's just starting the radio swing but buckeye talk is high on the list well i hope all the work that he puts in to get that thing ready for the football season doesn't go to waste and we get to have a football season and then friday uh another in our series of position group breakdowns. It's going to be the defensive line. So just a, a preview of that for the 2020 season that again, we hope to have. So stick around this week, come back for both of those episodes. And that was Buckeye talk. <laughs>